Hi, everybody. This is Devan Molyneux from Freedomain Radio. Uh, no particular announcements. Uh, you might want to check out the Hulk Hogan video. Um, it's really our first attempt at pornography. And, My um, first sex tape. I'm excited. <laughs> it's extremely rare. Normally, it's the consumption of pornography that produces carpal tunnel syndrome. In this case, it actually was the production of pornography uh, that uh, did it. And if, for more on that, you can just go and check out, uh, I don't know, what was the title of the video again? It was, it, wait, what, what clickbait title did you come up with again? Hulk Hogan's racist rant, uh, WWE Gawker and You, I believe is the title. But uh, it's been quite popular, a lot of new people finding the show through it. So I hope you check it out. Let us know what you think. And for those of you who are surprised at my deep, deep knowledge of WWE and general wrestling law of entertainment, I'd like to say thank you. It was hard-won knowledge, and, and Mike gave it to me, and I read it. <laughs> and, you know, that's not, that's not always easy. I mean, pronouncing some of those names. I mean, Stoyan is the one who likes giving me the most ridiculous names, especially in the Greek presentation. It's like, oh, I'm sure we can find a guy with more syllables who'd said something similar. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, it was a good show, and uh, I hope that you'll... Check it out. Gene Morris Part 3 is currently cooking in the books, and I hope you'll check that out when it comes up. Uh, I'm really, really excited about that one. It's really amazing how <laughs> I'm trying not to do Mr. Confirmation Bias, but we also have The Death of Reason coming out, which is all the reasons as to why you never listen to reason uh, as you listen to a show trying to convince you to listen to reason. There's a reason for that. Now I want a raisin to eat. Anyway, <laughs> so um, hope you're having a great uh, evening. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. If you'd be so very kind, we'd appreciate that. It's Mike. All right. Well, up first today is Peter. Peter wrote in and said, I am from Marxist slash communist slash socialist South Africa. I'm working very hard to try and immigrate to another country, but the, at the current rate, it will probably take me another four or five years. How do I stay motivated and positive when I am surrounded by extreme violence and a high crime rate, never knowing when I might be next. That's from Peter, who may be our first caller from South Africa ever. So, welcome to the show, Peter. Steph, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing, Ben? Good, good. Thank you. Now, are you white in South Africa? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. Just, I just wanted to, to check that. Um, I don't, I mean, you, you may check, check your back. A pocket, or, or sometimes it's in um, your your like the blazer uh, that you have. There's a a little. Um, it's a white privilege card. Uh, it's a, a Pillsbury Doughboy coated in gold, or sometimes it's a Michelin Man with diamonds encrusted. So if you check your white privilege card, then wherever you go, life is wonderful. Uh, the seas part before you. Women throw their clothes off and and hurl themselves <laughs> at your feet, and no one ever ever says anything bad to you. Or ever accuses you of having white privilege. That's how powerful white privilege is. So maybe you've mislaid your card. Uh, and um, if you have mislaid your card, uh, you just apply to whiteprivilegehistory.com. And uh, they will send you a new one. Assuming that you can um, submit proof of the fact that you are white. Which, of course, is a terrifying desire to oppress everyone. You know, I mean, most people who aren't white get up in the morning and they... Um, you know, they, they want to take care of their kids. Uh, you know, maybe they want to clean out the eaves trough in their house. Maybe they got to take their car in for repairs. Of course, white people, we don't do that at all, particularly white males. All we do is we wake up and, you know, maybe our wife has given us a list. Uh, you know, go get some groceries and pay the tax bills at the bank or whatever it is. And we basically eat that list 
and we <laughs> take out our other list, which is our everyday list, which is um, before I even eat breakfast, I simply have to oppress minorities. Uh, and that's... <laughs> only reason I get out of bed. It's the only, I got nothing else to do. I mean, white people, of course, not overly burdened with employment or high, higher taxes than the average. And so we just, you know, as you know, you know, secret handshake, white male to white male, we simply wake up and we spend the morning, of course, uh, finding ways to repress uh, and uh, cripple minority uh, aspirations. Uh, and then in the afternoon, we switch to uh, to women, right? We go from minorities, oppressing minorities, to uh, oppressing women, uh, and then we don't have to have jobs because apparently that pays a lot to oppress people. And uh, then we just wish that we had the empire back because that was so much fun. Colonialism was just nothing but uh, kettles and roses and foot rubs from other people. So that would be my suggestion. Instead of trying to go someplace, just remember how incredibly privileged you are, how incredibly powerful you are, and um, in- enjoy that. Does, does that help at all? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll uh, go head off to the Lost and Found right now and check my card maybe is there. <laughs> All right. Well, the next caller on the show today is... Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and remember, at any time a white person such as myself is called a cracker online, remember that uh, it's, a big, it's a big media story um, because, because we have so much power as white males that the media constantly does her bidding. And uh, always protects us from any criticism. And uh, uh, the only time the race card is ever played is, well, he's white and he's a male, so he's got to be right. Uh, He's got to be correct. Anytime there's kind of any problems between a white male and any other race, the white male is automatically assumed to be in the right. And the other race is always assumed to be, you know, lying or manipulative or racist or, or playing the victim card. And so... Um, you know, we just you know, just remember that that you get to float above all human conflicts, knowing that uh, the media and uh, will always portray you as being in the right, uh, because that's really what privilege is all about. So just enjoy that sweet, sweet fruit. All right, yeah, no. enough of that, Salinas. <laughs> let's uh, get on to. So, how are things? I spent a little bit of time in South Africa when I was young, and then again when I was a teenager, like a couple of months each time. And so, I'm scarcely an expert. We've toyed around doing the truth about South Africa because uh, when I was, I, let me just do this real brief and then I'll, I'll shut up. But um, when I was younger, of course, the apartheid was the big issue. And uh, uh, I remember getting into ferocious debates with people, even as a teenager, uh, especially after I'd been to Africa, South Africa in particular, saying, you know, yeah, it's not that simple. Uh, you know, if, you know, of course, one race should not rule over another race, no question of that. But uh, these transitions, it's not just as simple as, well, get rid of the white people, get rid of apartheid and paradise. It just, it's not, that's not how it's going to work. And if you really care for uh, the blacks in South Africa, then um, first of all, you have to recognize that, the, that most of the blacks in Africa were dying to get into South Africa. In fact, they would even go through uh, the, the sort of protected areas with the wildlife and risk literally being eaten by lions uh, and so on. They, they, to try and get into South Africa was considered to be one of the best things. So blacks loved South Africa, even though everyone who wasn't there or had not visited and so on thought it was just horrible and racist. It's sort of like America, although, of course, America doesn't have uh, any kind of apartheid. But um, insofar as everyone says it's a horrible racist country and everybody wants to get in there. (laughs) The same thing was true in a lot of ways for South Africa. And um, so everybody said, well, you know, basically let's get rid of apartheid 
and then everything's going to be fantastic when blacks get self-rule. And those of us who know a little bit about history and, and sort of previous experience with colonized people being handed control of their own government, it's not as simple as, well, you know, the bad whites have gone away and now Garden of Eden, right? Um, so what's your experience been uh, of of that? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I've, uh, well, I've, I've lived pretty much my whole life in, life in South Africa, uh, have traveled a bit to other countries. Uh, so, you know, so I've been to New Zealand, seen how it's been there. And yeah, once once you go to a first world country and you come back and you're like, uh, yeah, it's pretty bad, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, uh, just looking at, uh, you know, if I can just give you some quick statistics. and uh, Oh, please. Uh, you know, it I mean, doesn't have uh, to be quick. You can take your time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, if I, if I just uh, start, you know, with something basic, you know, you, uh, living conditions, you know, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, you have to go hunt for food and, you know, scavenge, nothing like that. But I mean, if you uh, take, for instance, just like your uh, salary, you know, my, my current salary uh, is equivalent to 830 US dollars for, for a month's work. What was that? Eight hundred and thirty. Eight hundred and thirty. Yes. So then, I mean, you do a minimum of two. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Could it could it just be not that wages in South Africa are low, but that you're really terrible at your job? <laughs> I just it, I'm just putting yeah. it out there as a possibility. Yeah. Now look, I mean, wages in South Africa are pretty low, uh, but uh, you know, I mean. This is this is the highest like uh, highest paying job I can get. I'm currently working as a armed response officer. Uh, what now? Uh, armed response officer. Uh, basically, it's uh, you're given a gun, a bulletproof uh, car, and yeah, go uh, make sure. Yeah. Oh, uh, um, like a like a, a ninja, well armed security guard. I don't mean to diminish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, is that is that like yeah. you're a private security force? Is yeah, that right? Pri- private security. Yes. Okay. And, Got uh, it. Uh, before that, I worked as a medic, uh, you know, so I've, I've got a, quite a good reality on, you know, what's going on out there. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of things firsthand, you know, I mean, and this is the best paying job I can get currently. Uh, yeah, I'm currently working on a degree to get, uh, you know, to broaden my horizons, but that, uh, that's going to take a, another, uh, another four or five years because I'm doing it part time. Um, but yeah, nice. so the best the best paying job that you can get is basically the shadow cast by I think what would fairly be appropriately said to be insanely high crime rates. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, from that eight hundred thirty dollars uh, equivalent, if I put it that way, uh, you know, you have to pay your house, uh, your uh, electricity costs are like going to cost you about 100 120 dollars you know equivalent to rent uh so electricity is pretty expensive uh food is pretty expensive you know so you really got to uh each month you know just get by just uh so that's a, quite a frustration you know it's never to uh, you never get to a point where you can just say okay now I'm really making progress now uh you know I mean so uh, I think I, I remember back then when you uh, did a thing about Nelson Mandela, you mentioned that, uh, uh, yeah, the average income, you know, got uh, decreased by, I think, like, what, 40% since uh, the new government came into power. 
so yeah, I mean that's that's really starting to show. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean uh, another thing that really bothers me, you know, is the murder rate. You know, uh, just uh, from 2004 to uh, 2014, there's been approximately 200,000 murders. What? 200,000. And that's not me 200, making 200,000 murders in 11 years. Yes. Well, that's that's up to uh, end of last year. That's not including this year. Uh, that and that's just from 200,000 murders. Yes. That that's not my numbers. That's the sort of No, no, I'm I'm not yeah, yeah. I'm not <laughs> doubting you. I, like I knew yeah. it was high. And uh, if but. you go Yeah, I mean but. if you look look back till uh since 1994, when the new government came into power, it's easily, easily near half a million people that has been murdered. You know, Do you know and, what the rate was under de Klerk and, and apartheid? Uh, I haven't actually got that, those, those, those statistics, but I know it was much, much lower. Maybe Mike, uh, if you're listening in, uh, if you could, um, he he always eavesdropping. I don't know what's going on, but um, <laughs> if uh, Mike, if you could just have a look at those, if you're listening at the keyhole, um, yeah. yeah, I mean it, that that's astounding. So since '94, since the end of apartheid, is that right? Uh, half half a million murders and rapes as well. I know I was reading a statistic yeah. that said the average African woman is more likely to be raped than learn how to read. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I checked those statistics from 2004 as well, and up until end of last year, that's like uh, about 730,000 sexual assaults, uh, wow. attempted murders. You know, it's, uh, just over 210,000 burglaries in the just in the past 10, 11 years has been 3.6 million. So. Gosh. I mean, and there's no, I can't imagine any conceivable way that a justice system can operate with that volume of crime. I mean, they, they hear about another, like another 10 murders come in before lunch. I mean, what are they, are they going to yeah. go and chase everyone down? I mean, w once a certain an amount of crime exists within a society, you can't, you can't do anything about it, right? It's like yeah. you, you can, you can surf a wave, you can't surf a tsunami, Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, uh, you know, uh, arresting these people is one thing, and then you get to the justice system, you know, where the, you arrest people and just literally a few days later they're out walking the streets again. I mean, I remember a couple of times, you know, where I've arrested, arrested uh, people that uh, uh, broke in and uh, so you catch the perpetrator and just like wait an hour, police never shows up, and eventually you have to get let the guy go, or you catch the guy, and then literally two three days later he's walking the streets again, you know, and uh, that's pretty frustrating. Right. What sort of um, security measures are people taking? I mean, I was reading about how if you rent a car in South Africa, um, it's very uh, it's very dangerous, and they have a lot of anti theft measures in place. Yeah, I mean, you have your, uh, you know, they're promoting a lot of uh, vehicle tracking and so on. If your cars uh, get get stolen, they can track the car. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things, uh, but uh, your home is, is literally becoming a, a yeah, literal prison, trying to keep everybody out. Uh, I mean, you've got spike fencing everywhere, and uh, I mean, you've got 
electric fences. Uh, you've got uh, steel bars over all of the windows. You know, so I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, uh, you know different measures everybody's trying to take, you know, to protect themselves and their property. Uh, and at the same time as well, you know, government's trying to uh, uh, bring more and more gun control into the country. Uh, yeah, as if that's <laughs> really going to help uh, solve the crime problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, uh, is, is there is there corruption in um, you said the court system was problematic? Is it because of corruption, or just they're overwhelmed, or what's the story? Oh, it's uh, it's uh, purely of corruption. Uh, I mean, the government's uh, doing as they please, left, right, and center. Uh, you know, and I mean, uh, the thing is that, uh, yeah, I mean, they're spending money like they, yeah, it's, it's they're spending money left, right, and center as if you know, it's uh, as if the country can afford it. And uh, you know, I mean, we uh, uh, personally, I think the. You know, the country is on the verge of uh, bankruptcy because, you know, the government's starting selling off gold and assets. I think uh, recently the government sold off uh, uh, 9 billion rand of uh, worth of gold to Iran. Uh, not quite sure how much that is in U.S. dollars, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a lot of money. Right. Um, I'm going to just uh, give a few more stats, if that's all right with you. No, no, go ahead. So low, low interest rates environments known for causing inflating credit and asset bubbles. And this is what over the last 10 years has sort of happened in South Africa. It's experienced two low interest rate periods in the last 10 years from 04 to 06 and the post-crisis period after 08. Uh, rapid credit growth and uh, that's far exceeded the rate of economic growth. So South Africa's real GDP grew by 38% in the past decade but private sector loans surged by approximately 225%. Since 2008, South Africa's real GDP grew by 12.7%, while private sector loans have increased by nearly 45%, right? So that's, uh, that's not good. Uh, so, yeah, it's almost four times um, the, the growth is, is debt. The M3 money supply, a broad measure of total money and credit in the economy, has had a 400% increase since 2004 and a 50% increase since 2008. So they're just printing uh, and flooding the money supply. South Africa's total outstanding external debt or debt owed to foreign creditors increased by 250% over the past 10 years and nearly 87% since 2008. From May 2015, unemployment in South Africa hit a 10-year high as power outages, drought, and widespread pessimism dragged down growth in the long-beleaguered economy. South Africa's unemployment rate climbed to 26.4% as the economy expanded just 1.3% in the first three months of 2015. Compared with 24.3% unemployment and 4.1% growth rate in the last quarter of 2014. You were talking about electricity, of course. Widespread blackouts have obliged mines and factories to curb out output since last year. Many neighborhoods also lose power several nights each week now. Darkened traffic lights, snarl traffic jams across Johannesburg and other commercial centers. Unemployment still remains the biggest problem in South Africa, according to a statistician. Um, and um, they've lashed out at local uh, governments. 
they say, on fulfilling promises to deliver housing, electricity, and sanitation services to all. More than 15,000 such demonstrations erupted last year, said the South African Institute of Race Relations, many of them violent and 100% increase since two, 2010, according to this Johannesburg-based uh, think tank. And um, this uh, frustration, of course, uh, jobless young South Africans, social unrest, uptick in violent crime. At least seven foreigners were killed in recent weeks and thousands fled their homes after South Africans rioted and ransacked shops owned by Somalis, Ethiopians and Zimbabweans. They say have taken up rare job opportunities. Uh, and this, of course, happens in America, too, where they lash out. Blacks uh, in the ghetto will lash out sometimes at uh, Koreans and others who have uh, convenience stores and so on. Uh, welfare dependency, of course, is a huge problem. Uh, from 2010, South Africa is the biggest welfare state in the world, economist Mike Schussler recently said. He said, quote, look at South Africa's dependency ratio. It's three people to one taxpayer, and it's unsustainable. And uh, so, yeah, three people uh, who are dependent on the state for every single taxpayer. From 2014, welfare dependency, a problem across the developed world, has reached a danger level in South Africa. More people receive aid than have jobs, and the ratio has been worsening for five years. While the handouts have helped address abject poverty since the end of the apartheid regime, they haven't helped recipients get skills needed for jobs in a country with 24% unemployment. Um, the state gives the money. Why should we doubt applying for it? Uh, says a, a woman as she adjusted the hem of her pink floral skirt over her swollen legs. Just think how I would have gotten by with all of these children. The government looks after them. In all, 16.5 million people receive government benefits compared with 5.2 million working as of the fourth quarter of 2013. Those on assistance make up 30% of the total population compared with 25% of Brazilians who are on that country's social welfare program. And... Uh, it is, uh, of course, something you, you, you can't see this reported uh, in the mainstream media because ever since the end of apartheid, uh, the theory, of course, is that South Africa now will be a wonderful paradise of opportunity for blacks and coexist peaceful coexistence with whites, uh, just as in the former Rhodesia with the white um, farmers uh, who have been run off their land and regularly killed. And far more of those white farmers have been killed than were ever killed under apartheid. Uh, the blacks were ever killed under apartheid. But of course, you can't. You can't report on this stuff uh, in, in the West because there is this, um, I dare to say, blackout on, on these kinds of issues because uh, the idea that there were some stability benefits to apartheid is something that simply goes against this savage egalitarianism manifesto that somehow you can take a black continent uh, and simply immediately move it into the 21st century without tribal allegiances being a problem, without a lack of skills being a problem, without a lack of history of ruling becoming a problem, and without, say, 2,500 years of philosophy and uh, um, minimal government uh, human rights and so on being part of the culture. Uh, it's just a mad fantasy. Uh, and um, we're seeing that play out, and, and I'm sorry that you're caught in it. Uh, and uh, it is a uh, it is a complete mess, and it's not about to get better. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean uh, absolutely. And uh, you know, the thing is, uh, you know, as you say, you know, the moment uh, uh, you know, the moment you uh, start pointing out certain things that you know, certain aspects of the apartheid era, you know, had were more positive than you know, you're a racist and you're this and that. You know, as you say, and that's why it never gets mentioned in mainstream media. Uh, you know, and I mean, uh, as you mentioned, like the blackouts, you know, that's 
that's a huge frustration for me. Uh, you know, I mean, every literally about every second day, uh, you've got power failures because the country can't cope uh, with the electricity demand. So you, you know, the price of electric electricity is sky high, uh, and on top of that, uh, you know, I mean the uh, every second day, uh, you know, there's uh, two three hours of uh, no electricity. Sometimes even right. four hours. Now you can imagine, uh, you know, uh, if you uh, and if this happens uh, during uh, business hours, what kind of a disaster that is for a business. Right, you, you can, and of course, if you're looking to locate a business somewhere, do you do you do people really think? I mean, other than of course, uh, mining or a lot of natural resources. If you're thinking of locating a business somewhere, how many people think Africa? That's where we want to be. <laughs> Yeah, and the thing is, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the thing is just that that, is, uh, that you know they've been building and building new uh, 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 power stations and so on, uh, and uh, it never never got properly finished. And now South Africa uh, ran to Russia and uh, yeah, went again and uh, buy new, uh, bought new uh, nuclear reactors. Uh, not, I'm not actually quite sure who's gonna build those reactors because uh, uh, recently they announced they want to uh, fire all the white engineers uh, uh, from ESCOM, who is uh, our electricity service provider, and replace them with only black skilled workers. Uh, it's actually quite funny, you know, to me. How it's okay to say, uh, you know, oh uh, yeah, all. All white people should be from these jobs, uh, and that's not racism. But at the moment, if you say uh, all black people should be fired to create job for jobs for white people, that's suddenly racism. Uh, no, I, there's there's no question of that. That um, it is hard for people to understand what kind of racism white people experience. And I mean, it's a volatile thing to say. I get that, but nonetheless, I have to stand by. What is true, um, and the reason being that if um, if a race if, if a white male let's say white if a white male is the victim of racism, nobody comes to that person's defense. And in, in fact, generally, it's considered karma for you know endless centuries of evils of of white people and so on. And it is just um, it is it is astounding. Uh, it's it's hard to know the special kind of racism that white males are subjected to. It's hard for people who aren't white males to understand that. You know, if there's an altercation between a white man and a black man, the white man is almost generally considered to be racist, even if there's no proof. Investigations are launched, lives are ruined, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yet, of course, uh, if there are explicit hate crimes, racially motivated hate crimes, um, about, uh, you know, I think of this Serbian fellow, the bunch of black youths running down the street saying, let's kill Whitey. And then they find this guy and beat him to death with hammers in front of his pregnant wife or fiance. And uh, it just vanishes. It vanishes from the media. It's, it's simply not reported. What's called polar bear hunting, which is where uh, black youths will go and try and knock out whites with a single blow, which sometimes results in deaths. This uh, completely under underreported or not reported, and uh, this this general shield over black violence, um, where you have uh, 
I think blacks are 13% of the U.S. population. Uh, black males are like 7% or so. And uh, black youths between sort of 15 and 30 are like 2 or 3% of the population. And in general, they're responsible for close to 50% of the murders. So 2 or 3% of the population, eh, it's 50% of the murders. And um, that, of course, uh, is, is not, you can't talk about that. And, and the moment that, that any negative black behavior is pointed out, uh, immediately, uh, it, it's white people's fault. I mean, <laughs> it's just immediately, yeah. immediately. Yeah. Like, oh, there's like black dysfunction. Every. It's white people. It's white people who are completely responsible for black dysfunction, which is incredibly disrespectful towards yeah. the black community. Because, I mean, when you take away people's capacity to affect their own lives for the better, you know, I fail to see how me living my life, doing my show and, and raising my daughter and, and, and all that, I simply fail to see how that causes some black youth in Chicago to shoot some other black youth. Like I, somebody can tie that to me together in anything that isn't just magical thinking or, or evil sorcery thinking. I'd be fascinated to hear it, but uh, it is so disrespectful. There's a great argument. Um, James Flynn, who's been on the show, and Charles Murray debated this recently. I guess not that recently. It's a couple of years ago now. But there's a study, and I'm, I'm quoting this off my sort of memory, so it's probably off base. But um, Tom Sowell, uh, the black economist, talks about it. And he says, uh, in, the, in the post-war period, a post-Second World War, sorry, <laughs> focus on me, I think it was post-Second World War period, um, black military service members in the U.S. Army, um, sometimes they fell in love with and married German women. And, you know, the big challenge, I don't know what the numbers are in um, South Africa for IQ testing. And again, it's not the be all and end all, but it's not unimportant. We're going to talk to a guy later in the show about IQ. But in um, Af in um, America, right, uh, African-American IQ is a standard deviation on average below that of whites, just as whites is below that of Asians and whites and Asians are generally, at least in the verbal component, below that of Ashkenazi Jews and so on. And in sub-Saharan Africa, I've heard studies of 70 to 75, which is, I mean, I don't know how you can, they've got to find a way to raise that to have a, a really well-functioning society. And, you know, as I've talked about a lot on this show, you know, breastfeeding, peaceful parenting, no corporal punishment, no spanking, uh, and so on. But Tom Sowell says, in a study of the, the offspring of the black American GIs and the white German women, it showed that the children of the black fathers and the white mothers, uh, normally in America, they fall halfway between 85 and 100. So the half is deviation, half of standard deviation below. And some people say, well, that's a genetic argument. And the counter to that, again, I'm certainly no expert on these. I'm simply putting forward the information. But the counter to that, is, uh, as Tom Sowell points out, he says, sorry, I say Tom Sowell, like, you know, he's just come over for tea. <laughs> Dr. Thomas Sowell, <laughs> as he points out, he says that um, why, with these, these half-black, half-white kids in Germany in the post-war period had an IQ test, uh, had tested IQ that was the same as whites. I mean, virtually, like a point or two or three, whatever, but virtually the same as whites. And he says, well, the reason for that is, is very simple, that they were not explo exposed to toxic black culture in America. Mm. And, you know, the sort of the anti 
intellectualism, the the aggressive anti-educationalism, the oh you're acting white if you want to get ahead, um, you know the rap. And I guess this all this not really going on in the post-war period, but he's saying that there's a toxic element because you know you could say oh well America's a racist society or whatever. This just become a mantra, but. Are you saying that? I mean, then people would have to say that Germany in like the late late 1940s was not a racist society at all. I think given that they voted for Hitler and fought a whole basic race war in some ways, <laughs> you know, it'd be a little tough to maintain that. And um, I, I think it's terrible. And I, I think that this white males have become like a kind of interracial Jesus figure where you just have to take on all the sins of all cultures and all problems everything gets dumped onto the lap of uh, white people and i and they call that privilege and all it does is uh, uh take the power to to heal and better cultures out, out of the participants in those cultures i think it's just absolutely yeah. terrible so uh, so south african mike do you want to do this bit about the murders yeah just i'm i'm trying to dig up stats now this is a very hotly debated situation there's a lot of numbers getting thrown around so take this with a grain of salt because i haven't had a chance to do complete vetting but this is from a mike, mike. <laughs> no no hang on hang on first of all salt is white <laughs> Get a little pepper. damn i'm a racist cumin <laughs> cinnamon peels all right well there's a this this is being quoted from um, Murder in South Africa, a comparison of past and present, first edition by Rob McCaffrey, communications director from United Christian Action. And again, I haven't totally vetted this because this is pretty short after being asked, so take it with a grain of salt. But uh, by the most conservative official figures provided by the SAPs during this period, the total number of murders is 377,465 for the 19-year period between 1990 and 2009. This averages to just under 20,000 murders per year for every year. The SAPS figures, however, are grossly underreported as evidenced by other official bodies of the South African government, such as the Home Affairs Department and the Medical Research Council, which both rec records causes of death separately from the politically influenced SAPS. The real figures, according to these bodies, are roughly estimated to be between 30 to 55 percent higher. Interpol puts the figures at sometimes up to 100% higher. The total number of murders in South Africa for the period of 1990 to 2009, if using Interpol figures for five of the years, only available for the years 1995 to 1999, and then separately for 2001, and the sad... Sorry, this is, um, this is about 47 million, a population of 47 million. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. which is what, one-sixth the amount of, uh, of those in, uh, in uh, America? Right. So using using some of this other information for the remaining 14 years, we come to a total of 528,791 murders for that period of 1990 to 2009, an average of a bit less than 30,000 murders a year. <laughs> it, it, this that's, uh, report that's is shocking. to be conservative and take a middle-of-the-road approach and put the number of murders... Uh, for the period at 453,128, the exact midpoint between the two figures, equating to almost 24,000 murders per year, every year for 19 years in a row. I, again, I don't know, I can't 100% say this is true, but I knew it was bad, but even if it's in the realm of this, holy crap. Holy crap. 
Okay, so now you've got one one place, and this is, again, all unconfirmed on the fly, and we'll put corrections out if this turns out to be nonsense, but you've got one place that says that the current murder rate is seven times higher now than it was under apartheid. Yeah, there's, there's some statistics and um, graphs in this document. It does seem to explode after the end of a... Now, I happen to believe that black lives do matter. I think white lives matter. I think everyone's lives matter. And the fact that you've got 400,000 blacks murdered as the result of a variety of things that may have happened after the end of apartheid, that matters. Those are 400,000 people who wanted to live. Those are 400,000 people who could have contributed to the world. Those are 400,000 people who were surrounded by people who had to bury them and mourn them. Uh, That's 400,000 holes in the economic fabric of South Africa, and that is a lot of dead people. I'm just still mortified and in shock reading these numbers. I and where are the activists now? Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, and uh, keep in mind, that's only the murder rate. That's not even the death count of uh, people that died on South African roads. I mean, we've got pretty horrific uh, uh, amount of uh, accidents here in South Africa. I mean, I know I've, I've seen a lot. You know, so if you don't, if you don't get murdered, you're probably going to die on... Uh, you know, just driving to work or whatever. Mike, can we get a can we get a death count on South African roads? Oh my god! And, and what, what is the healthcare system like at the moment? I assume, of course, that there is this massive problem of of AIDS and HIV. But what is the healthcare system like for you? Uh, you know, Steph. Uh, <laughs> if I answer this question, people will think I'm probably exaggerating, but. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I've been a medic for like four and a half years before my, you know, this current job that I had, and uh, it, I can count on many times that, you know, I've uh, went into uh, government-operated uh, hospitals uh, where you literally find people lying dead there that uh, they just never received any care and uh, eventually died. And nobody even, the nurses don't even know that the person's dead, you know, so the healthcare is pretty horrific. You know, obviously, you know, if you've got lots of money and you can afford uh, private health care, you know, that's a different story. But, I mean, if, you, uh, if you're forced to go to a government hospital, you know, you're pretty much at their mercy. Right. 420,000 additional, 420, additional murderers after the end of apartheid. I got some, some road stats. This is from The Economist, so I, I trust that it's accurate. Some of the world's most dangerous roads are in South Africa. Last month, this is uh, in 2011, 43 people a day for a population of 50 million were killed in traffic accidents. My God, that's like, that's like I think, scooters in Sao Paulo when I was there for a speech. Uh, I think it was one a day. But 43 people a day die on the uh, South African roads. Though it still has yep. less than one registered vehicle for every five inhabitants, Africa's most advanced country recorded 33 road deaths per 100,000 inhabitants in 2007, according to the World Health Organization, which is double the fatality rate of the U.S., uh, who has a lot more... Wait, double the fatality rate of the U.S., but the U.S. is like guns, cars, people, I think, in terms of population, right? Yeah, the, the U.S. has almost one vehicle for every inhabitant versus the one in five for South Africa. And uh, Wait a second. So in America, there are 300 million cars 
in Africa, one in five. So there are eight, there are eight million cars. So three hundred million cars in America, eight or nine million cars in South Africa. But South Africa has double the vehicular manslaughter rate. Is that right? Yeah, and it's uh, six times the rate of, as in Britain. So it's uh, well, and in Britain gosh. they 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 drive on the wrong side of the road, and that of course is a carnage, right? Because <laughs> it's wrong. <laughs> I know, Peter, uh, you called in for some motivational pep. Of going with this situation. Run! We're just tunnel, bury, build a bunch of statistics. But wow, I, I didn't know that it was as bad as uh, it sounds like it is in South Africa. Yeah, and, you know, and the thing is, uh, you know, for people who think that this this is uh, completely exaggerated or anything like that, I can guarantee it's not. Uh, you know, I spent uh, 12 hours a day on the road. Man, I've had some pretty close calls. I, you know, I mean, I can tell you, uh, people just completely have no regard for traffic laws whatsoever. You know, I mean, I remember the days when uh, running a red light was big, big no-no. You know, you got into a lot of trouble. You know, and today, you know, it's like every second, third person, they just, they just drive over a red light. You know, and it just doesn't bother anyone. Uh, what about um, the um, single fatherhood? What's the, what's the story there? Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, it's uh, let me tell you. Well, from that, from what I've seen, you know, it's pretty horrific. You know, because uh, uh, you know the mentality is uh, of the African culture is pretty much uh, the male sits back and relax, drinks his beer, watches soccer. And, uh, you know, the mother, she's got to provide for the children, you know. So never mind child abuse. I mean, uh, that's pretty rampant as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I think, a single father, or single, or uh, there's a, a quite a lack of uh, fathers, you know, in uh, the black community. And, uh, you know, I personally think that's probably one of the main uh uh, causes of all these problems that we have, um, you know. The thing is, uh, because the black community is also so violent, you know, children, you know, get ab- abused quite horrifically. Um, you know, you know, and if, obviously, if they're female, they run the risk of getting raped. Uh, you know, and as, even as as early as babies, I mean, uh, you'll be quite shocked. You know, I mean, how often babies get raped in South Africa? Uh, babies. Babies, I kid you not. Uh, is there is there some? I know that there's a superstition that if you have AIDS, if you have sex with a virgin, somehow it's going to cure you. Is there any superstition or fetish around sex with infants? Uh, yes, I think it's uh, partly that, and I think the other part is just uh, they're completely evil human beings here, uh, because uh, you know. It's like uh, uh, literally every, almost every day, you know, you see these uh, things, you know, in a local newspaper, you know, uh, a baby or toddlers get raped, you know, and uh, that's, it's, uh, you know, as if, you know, it gets reported, but, you know, you've, you've seen it so many times now, you just uh, kind of get uh, acclimated to it. I can't imagine what uh, this, uh, what kind of trauma that is for a child to grow up with uh, as well. I mean, yeah, astonishing, horrifying. 
and, and what that does to the culture as a whole. I mean, it's just brutal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I mean, uh, when we've talked about the murder and the violence, you know, I mean, just this Thursday that uh, passed, uh, finished my night shift, and uh, a 17-year-old kid uh, got murdered for money. And not just, mm. like, shot or anything. I mean, it was... Uh, I mean, that's not quite easy for me to talk about, but, I mean, he was disemboweled and uh, partially decapitated. Disemboweled? Yeah. But why would you disembowel? I mean, wouldn't you just kill someone for money? Well, I don't understand the disemboweling part. Wouldn't that slow you down? I don't know. That seems uh, needlessly sadistic, not that the murder is not horrifying enough, of course. I don't know. I mean, it's just like... Uh, I don't know why anyone would go to that extreme. Uh, it's just, I mean, completely shocking to me. And uh, uh, I know in some of the black communities, uh, you know, sometimes children go missing and uh, get chopped up for magic potions and stuff like that. I know that's a reality, uh, you know, but uh, doing just this for money, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why this. And I can't imagine a lot of money either. No, I mean it's uh, yeah, it's actually not really a, that much amount of money. Uh, I think it was like eight thousand rand, which was probably equivalent of uh, I don't know something like six hundred dollars or something. Right. Well, given the salary, that's almost a month's salary, right? Yeah, it's but nonetheless, almost a month. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. What's it doing to you living in this uh, environment? Do you think? How do you, you feel know, about it? I mean, you wake up in the morning and the sun's coming in, and what's yeah, your thought I mean, about uh, your day? You know, the thing is, um, uh, I, I honestly don't look forward to uh, going to work. Uh, obviously, I'm a, I suppose it's quite ironic, suppose, but uh, you know, obviously, work in a very uh, hazardous environment, being an armed response officer. But, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, I'm pretty much uh, scared to death, you know. I mean, uh, it, it's a reality that uh, you could be next. And, uh, you know, I try not to focus on these things, but, I mean, it uh, keeps on uh, mulling in the back of your head. Of uh, course, yeah. You know, I mean, I've, uh, as a medic, before this this job, I mean, Man, I had to declare a lot of people dead, man. Uh, uh, you know, and you, you never forget that. Uh, I mean, the worst case I had was, uh, I think it was about a year or two ago on Christmas, uh, literally where I had uh, an entire family that just finished the Christmas meal, got into a car, and gone like that, you know. And... Uh, the daughter survived, but I mean, uh, uh, you know, having to treat, try and help those people, uh, you know, and uh, afterward tell, telling her that, sorry, your, your mom and dad's dead. That just, man, that's pretty much hell on me, man. Uh, that sucks. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I know being a med, uh, when I chose the occupation of being a medic, you know, I mean, you, you know, there's going to be uh, emotional trauma for you 
uh, it's, I guess, part of the job, but I mean, she's having uh, one death after another is just, yeah, too much. You know, it's pretty much why I quit being a medic, you know, it just you just can't handle that anymore. Uh, and that must be a pretty high burnout rate for the occupation. Yeah, man. I, yeah, no, I've, uh, definitely. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, even, even this job that I'm doing now, uh, I'm doing it now for about eight months and, uh, it's, it's pretty stressful. I mean, you don't have a partner or anything. It's you alone in a car and, you know, uh, you have to go in some pretty dodgy places, let me tell you. Uh, and, uh, you know, that works on me quite a lot as well. Um, and, you know, I'm studying part-time for my bachelor's degree, as I mentioned, and I just uh, don't quite know exactly how do you, how I'm going to endure this, doing this job and starting part-time as well until I eventually have the capacity to make a move somewhere. Why? And I don't know much about the legality of this. Of course, my father lived in South Africa, and um, it was very hard for him to get money out of the country uh, to, to help. And then he left when he finished his uh, his career. What uh, What is it like to, to get out? I mean, where do you want to head to? Uh, you know, like I mentioned, I've, I've been to New Zealand. I've got some family there. Uh, uh, you know, I've uh, thought of actually uh, maybe going to Japan. Uh, you know, I enjoy learning new culture, uh, new cultures, and uh, I've got quite a liking into Japanese culture. And uh, uh, I want to learn new fo- foreign language, you know, and so on. Uh, uh, not not quite set yet. Uh, maybe I'm still deciding between New Zealand and Japan, but. Uh, the problem is to, uh, you know, to immigrate uh, for Japan, for instance, you, you cannot get a work visa without a four-year bachelor's degree. I mean, you can be, right. you can have 20 years experience and whatever. Uh, to have a visa or to get a work visa, you need a bachelor's degree. Uh, and I saw the same thing with many other countries, uh, you know, so. Can you, can you study as a foreign student, I guess you'd need money for that, right? But to study as a foreign student uh, anywhere, or like if you go to New Zealand to finish your degree? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, one nice thing, uh, uh, I'm, do- I'm doing a long-distance uh, studying program, so I can pretty much, uh, you know, work in, uh, I'm just going to make use an example. Uh, I can study in New Zealand or America uh, through the same university that I'm studying now. So that's that's not a problem, uh, you know. And eventually, uh, finish my degree overseas. Uh, obviously, I'd still need uh, you know a job and money and so on. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, my um, you know every day that you spend being exposed to trauma is a day, at least, that you have to spend decompressing, and you're building up quite a deficit right here in terms of another couple of years of this difficult, dangerous, and stressful environment, uh, it's going to be a challenge. So my impulse would be to try and finish your education someplace more peaceful. I mean, you've got to, and I don't want to tell you your experience, and I don't want to, you know, project what I sort of thought and experienced, but um, what is the, what is the relationship between blacks and whites from your 
white perspective in South Africa? I mean, how do you feel uh, you are treated or viewed as a white person? Uh, you know, Steph, um, I don't want to create a picture that all blacks are bad or anything. <laughs> That's uh, certainly not the case, you know. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's been cases I've worked with a lot of black people, and there has been a lot of... Uh, uh, black people that has a, has had a positive ad- attitude toward me, but I can tell you the vast majority pretty much has, and it's it's gotten a lot worse re- uh, recently. We just uh, they have this absolute hatred towards white people, uh, and they uh, you know they keep on uh, uh, you know saying things like you know uh, you know all white people should be killed and they should leave the country. And, uh, you know, Africa is for Africans, uh, which is actually quite ironic since they're murdering other Africans. That's not, that you know, foreign Africans as well. But anyway. And if you would, and of course, if you can imagine someone saying that Europe is for white people or Canada and America are for white people, everybody would go insane. White supremacist, white nationalist and so on. But black oh, yeah. people can say that. And I hear that. I mean, I, I get those comments on my videos and. Uh, you know, that, that, that white people should be killed, white people are the devil, white people have created all these problems and they've done all these terrible things and no race on, worth, on earth is worse than white people and so on. And that's, again, doesn't doesn't fit into the generally left-wing paradigm uh, of uh, black victimization. And of course, there is this whole theory that blacks can't be racist because they're victims always and forever. Uh, yeah. And um, it is, yeah, I'm pumping this... Um, uh, amount of hatred, this amount of anti-white hatred into the world mind, as a, in, in a sense, into the emotional, ideological stratospheres of the human mind, uh, pumping this amount of hatred towards uh, whites uh, is, uh, it's going to have very negative consequences. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, um, whites will then be blamed for those negative <laughs> consequences as well. But at some point, uh, people will recognize that, uh, demonizing any race is uh, morally corrupt and, and vicious uh, and i'm sorry that you're being exposed to it but don't let me interrupt you i'm sorry but please please continue <laughs> yeah i mean absolutely uh, i agree you know and the thing is uh that uh I've, I've i've absolutely got no hatred towards uh uh black people or uh you know people of other races you know uh and it's it's quite a, a sad thing to me to you know to see all these things going on because I know, I mean, you know, South Africa's got so much potential, potential, you know, I mean, it's just wasted on constant rate, uh, on constant uh, race baiting, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, and the thing is, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh even like uh, study bursaries now, uh, I mean, as a, as a white student or as a white person, getting a study bursary now is very, very difficult because uh, it, uh, yeah, recently there was this whole rioting going on again about you know how uh, uh, getting a, burs- a bursary should only be more for black people and not for white people. Uh, like <laughs> in the beginning of your, uh, when you, uh, as you said, uh, yeah, we just like uh, have this... Uh, white privilege that we have and uh, unlimited amount of money so we don't need study bursaries or anything like that right and and this is of course um this is the uh 
this is the challenge. I mean, if if whites become a minority in their own countries, it's not like um, the Hispanics or the blacks or the Muslims are going to be all keen on affirmative action for whites. Yeah. I mean, it's just not, I mean, this is just a fool's game. I mean, I, th I think basically think whites are just being played. And I think that whites are surrendering to feelings of, of guilt which is incredibly destructive. Uh, I think it's Shelby Steele, who's a black writer I admire enormously, uh, just keeps pointing out that white guilt is uh, incredibly toxic to race relations. And uh, there's a principle, of course, in, in law that you cannot inherit the debts of your fathers. Your father runs up a visa bill, it dies with him. And uh, it's the same thing true, true with, with, with uh, slavery and so on. And slavery, again, it's always talked about as if, well, it's just whites who enslaved black for reasons of racism. And that's the only thing that ever happened in, in slavery throughout history. Slavery, of yeah. course, was a worldwide phenomenon that was occurring before human beings even learned to write. Before there was a written language, there are depictions of slavery. Slavery is a universally human constant that was almost single-handedly ended by white Western European culture uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. And uh, because white f whites felt the worst about slavery and worked very hard to end it, uh, whites then get pinned with the guilt of slavery from here to eternity. And I mean, that's just so ridiculous and so insane. And the idea, like somebody was talking about uh, slavery in a comment, and I said, never happened to you, was never done by me. So what yeah. are you talking about? What are you talking Well, they're trying to push the white guilt button. If you push the white guilt button, uh, white people will give you money so that you'll stop pushing the white guilt button. But you know what happens is when you pay off people who are threatening you, that doesn't exactly get them to stop threatening you, right? Yeah. Uh, it means that they'll simply keep pushing. Oh, look, every time we push this big white guilt button, we get money and we get resources. We get uh, white people to do what we want. It's the big program whitey button. It's the white guilt button. And yeah. people are surprised that white guilt is not leading to a healing in race relations. There was a recent study in America that says most people think race relations is worse now than after the first half black, half white president was elected. And of course it is worse. Of course it is worse. It's going to keep getting worse until uh, white people stop feeling guilty for things that never no white person ever did. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, so for, I mean, it just just statistically. Uh, there's a good case to be made that there are more black criminals now than there ever were white slave owners in the past. Now, if I were to say blacks are somehow collectively responsible for the criminal activity of some blacks, that would be completely racist, even though that's happening in the present. And um, uh, But for people to say that whites are somehow collectively responsible for a tiny minority, like a couple of percentage points of whites who owned slaves hundreds of years ago... That somehow is legitimate. But if I say, well, there are more black criminals than there ever were white slave owners. And so I get to then say all blacks owe me for criminality in the same way that somehow, not all, but some, some blacks say, well, all whites owe us for slavery. It's like, okay, then all blacks owe me for the cost of, of, of the criminality in the black community. But that would be a wrong thing to say. You can't judge all blacks by some proportion of criminals within the black community. In the present. And you certainly can't judge whites by a tiny proportion of white slave owners hundreds of years ago. But until white people stop feeling guilty and grow the spine that two world wars seems to have permanently knocked out of the culture, things are just going to keep getting worse. And yeah. um, I, I don't know any other option or alternative to that, which means you're going to have to run the gauntlet of being called a racist. 
Sorry. I mean, that's just that's just a word that people throw at white people to get resources. I'm sorry. It's just the way that it works. And uh, if it keeps yeah. working, it's going to keep happening. And until white people say, no, come on. I mean, <laughs> the, the mistake that white people have made with regards to race is guilt. It's like it's just become this this new Catholic thing that you just have to. It's the original sin is is <laughs> is paleness. And you have to uh, pay people. Uh, to not be called a racist. And as long as these witch hunts, and I dare say lynchings of white people occur for any potentially racist thing that happens, whereas Jamie Foxx can go and give a speech at the Oscars and say, hey, I was in a movie called Django Unchained where I got to run around and shoot all these white people. Isn't that the best thing ever? I mean, try making that joke if you're in a film shooting black people uh, and everyone would go insane, right? Yeah. And so uh, as long as this guilt continues, this massive amount of dysfunction between the races is only going to escalate and um, I, we just we have to stop feeling guilty and stop feeling afraid. And we just have to run the gauntlet of being called racist. Because um, to, to really care about the black community is to not, um, to not absorb all the problems in the black community into this whiteness. Well, you're white, and therefore that's why there are problems in the black community. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to soak that up because... I think the blacks are perfectly competent to to solve the problems in their own community, but they're not going to as long as everyone keeps telling them and they believe that it's just white's white's fault. It's white's yeah. fault. And I mean it's like, well, you know, the the black people weren't here by choice. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Guess what? Most of the white people weren't here by choice either. They were fleeing tyrannical regimes at home. It uh, doesn't yeah. make it equivalent, but it's not like the black people all – so the white, black people all came over on slave ships, which in general they did. But the white people weren't taking like uh, the love boat with uh, Julie on the Lido deck uh, handing out uh, shuffleboard sticks. I mean uh, they were uh, fleeing the tyrannies of their governments at home and uh, had pretty crappy lives uh, as a result of it in many ways. So anyway, I mean uh, this is a bit of a ramble, but um, I joined together with the – Black leaders uh, who, you know, Shelby Steele and, and Tom Sowell and, and going all the way back to uh, some of Marcus Garvey's and Booker T, uh, uh, Washington, uh, the, these guys who said, look, I mean, we have to treat each other as equals. And I don't think there's any way that you could say, well, you see, white drug use is, is it must be blamed on black people because they feel bad about slavery and they're self-medicating. And therefore, it's black people's fault that white people use drugs. Uh, I mean, that would just be a stupid thing to say. And yeah, yeah. Um, it would then wouldn't give black, white people the opportunity to look in the mirror and say, how can I fix it myself? And I am, you know, I'm just relentlessly dedicated to treating racists the same. I'm relentlessly dedicated, which means, no, I'm not going to feel guilty because some white like a tiny percentage of well-connected and rich white people uh, uh, owned um, slaves. I mean, that's yeah. like saying, well, you see, there are a lot of Jewish bankers. Therefore, all Jews are responsible for the financial crash. I mean, that would be anti-Semitism. And the idea that and that's in the present, right? Hundreds, hundreds of years ago, 2% or 3% of Jews did X. Therefore, all Jews in the present owe me $10,000 a piece. And it's like, oh, come on. Come on. I mean... We just have to say no to that stuff. And we have to say no out of love and out of respect and out of concern and out of care and saying, no, listen, man, you blame me for your problems when I'm not the source of your problems. You're just disempowering yourself and you are making sure those problems can never, ever be solved. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. So what about teaching in English in China? I hear that's not too hard to a gig to get into. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that's actually the thing that I... Uh, uh, well, well, it's kind of part of my plan that I wanted to do in Japan is uh, teach English. But uh, once again... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but in did, China, I don't think you need a BA. Uh, yes, yes, we actually do. I uh, did, did the research. And, oh, is that right? uh, yeah, that was just came to a dead end as well. Uh, that the, may be new, or it may just be from South Africa, because I know we had some listeners who boogied out to uh, China to teach in the past. I don't think they had degrees, but again, yeah, maybe. Peter, let me just put out the call. I know there's quite a few people that listen to the show that have either done this or currently doing this, teaching English in a foreign country. So if you have any information that would be helpful for Peter, please send it to me at operations at freedomainradio.com and I'll forward it to him. Maybe uh, the collective board brain of the listenership knows something that we don't, might be able to help you out, Peter. So. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah, no, it would definitely be great. Uh, you know, I, I tried to go down that avenue, and uh, actually, it was uh, kind of the. <laughs> I know it might be sound stupid, but uh, uh, kind of the inspiration for my to get my bachelor's degree is, uh, you know, so that I can at least have something uh, or some way to escape the the current situation. Uh, can uh, Can I make an offer here? Yeah, sure. I mean, I know, like most guys, you're like, help, help. <laughs> Accepting help will make me gay or something like that, right? <laughs> but will you take a minor offer of help? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so let's say you can get somewhere. I know, I mean, trying to save up cash on 600 bones a month is pretty is pretty tough. If it's just like a plane ticket or something that you need, will you give us a shout, let us know, and let us help you out? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Good, good, okay. Cause, and, and, you know, we can get... Uh, listeners to you know meet you at the airport and and get you set up so you're not heading out alone and all that so if you'll take the help uh and i you know i say this to people who are in traumatic situations as a whole i don't care what race you are but um if you're in a traumatic situation we actually think we made yeah we made this offer to a black guy who called in who was uh, in a traumatic situation if there's something that we can do like if it's just a matter of of money or information or resources or support or a community that you can get to let us organize something to to help you uh, and um, uh, that would make me feel good. Uh, and not that you care necessarily about that as your primary goal, but uh, if if it's just a matter like you you just you need a flight or or whatever it is, we can we can cover that, get you out, get you to some place where you're not in this situation of exquisite terror every day. Yeah, uh, look, I definitely appreciate it, and uh, yeah, I I'll uh, accept any help I can get, uh, and uh, you know I, I really appreciate it. All right. Okay. So we'll try and get you some resources. Uh, we'll certainly work to do our best to to get you some help. And and thank you so much for calling. And uh, I am I am sorry. And you know, it really it makes me mad. It makes me mad. And I'm not even going to do a big rant here. But it just it makes me mad that these activists come in and it's like, oh, let's end apartheid. Let's end racism. And and they 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 don't have to live in the aftermath. They don't have to live, you know, with half a million murders and three quarters of a million rapes. They don't have to live in these gated communities. They don't have to live with, I remember when I was there, uh, broken glass on top of, you seen that, right? Broken glass on top of the um, walls to keep uh, people out and bars yeah. on the window. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's more than a virtual prison. And, and fear 
uh, at, at walking down the street. Uh, they, and so these activists, they come bungeeing in, you know, and it's like, Freeman Nelson Mandela and apartheid. It's like, and then they go back and they don't have to live with the aftermath. And that exactly. they don't have to live with babies being raped in their environment. They don't have to live with kids being grabbed off the street and cut up for magic potions. They don't have to live with that. And that's what bugs the shit out of me uh, when it comes to activism. I think if you're an activist, stay. Yeah. Because then you're invested not just in your own moral self-congratulation and thinking what a great and wonderful person you are. Oh, look, I've demonized white males. You're a moral hero because no one gets to do that. <laughs> You know, go down, take on the nation of Islam. Okay, I'll give you some props. But protesting about white males are bad, white people are racist. Oh, yeah, wow, never heard that one before. You're such a moral hero. Boy, are you ever cutting the new edge of human excellence in, in ethics. But, um, uh, I, yeah, it just it bothers me. And I remember saying this at the time, you know, like, oh, you're pouring all this weight and emotion and energy into this. And, yeah. Apartheid was not a good system. I'm an anarchist. I don't think any government system is good. But uh, the idea that you just rip off this Band-Aid and no one bleeds to death is just a lie. But everyone just walks away from the blood, leaves the body on the pavement and says, look at me. I'm such a great person. I demonize white people. I fought racism. I'm an activist. I'm powerful. I'm good. And then the country falls apart and um, they're back home uh, playing a wee. So anyway, keep, yeah. keep us posted, man, and, and let us help you if... Uh, if you if you if you can and if we can so okay all right no, absolutely thanks okay thank, Great. thank you Stefan uh, Jan I just want to say thanks to you and the team uh, appreciate uh, all you guys are doing and keep up the good work uh, uh, the work that you're doing is uh, I believe really making a difference out there and uh, it keeps me sane so <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thank you man yeah, and listen I know we I know we we danced on some pretty volatile landmines here how was the conversation for you I just wanted to check before you you left. Uh, no, it's, it's it's it was amazing. Thanks. I uh, it's, uh, actually was actually looking quite uh, forward to uh, talking to you about these things, and uh, uh, actually uh, really helped me, you know, just to uh, you know have a bit more hope again. <laughs> good, good. Well, we'll we'll do what we can to try and help you out. Not that you can't do it yourself, but it always helps to get some some aid. So, thanks. Yeah. Hey, foreign aid. We're setting up our own office. All right, thanks, man. Let's move yeah. on to the next caller. All right, thank thanks, so. Peter. Bye. Take care and stay safe, man. Well, Luke, thanks. Bye. All right. Well, up next is Brandon. Brandon wrote in and said, um, since Stefan is doing a series on gene wars, I thought, since that I have an IQ in the 90s range, I thought it would be a good idea to get some point of view from people having an IQ that is lower than the average mean. As someone with an IQ of 92, I wonder what solutions we can do to help our underclass prosper. That's from Brandon. So how do you know you have an IQ of 92? I looked it up. Okay. Um, I took an IQ test. It was 95. I took another IQ test, but it was of lower quality. And wait, wait, then, wait. Did you – wait. Sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But when you say you took an IQ test, what does that mean? Because an IQ test needs to be administered. Uh, you have to have a professional and you have to discuss the results with you. And 92, you know, because there's different components to an IQ test, right? There's the verbal oh, yeah. component. There's the spatial reasoning component. And you may score high on one and low on another. Uh, and so I just wanted to know what it means when you say that you got it. Um, it was on the Internet. Like, yeah. I, do, you I know what know. My, do you know what my IQ is on an Internet test? What? 
I just, I just had a curiosity. I took one because I've never taken one. So I scored 180, and I don't think that that's particularly valid. I just, so I don't know what that means. But I would say that if you took a test that was not, a, that's why I don't count what I, I just took it for funsies. But um, if if you took an IQ test that was not administered. Uh, by by a professional who who really under, knows what they're doing can interpret the results and can can walk you through what what it means. I would not self like I don't self categorize myself with an IQ of 180 just because I took some half hour test online. And I certainly it, it, for you I would not if I were in your shoes I would not say oh I have an IQ of 92 because that's what the internet says. But I mean it's, it's a great question nonetheless, right? Which is. Um, what do we do, so to speak, if there's, if that even makes any sense? What do we do with people who are less intelligent in a free society? Is that sort of your basic question? Yeah. Right. Um, what, um, what are your aspirations in life, Brandon? What is it that you want to achieve? I would have liked to become a video game creator. Um... Wait, that sounds like your obituary, Brandon. He left us too soon. He really wanted to become a video game creator, but unfortunately, he took a step on a South African road and now a stain, <laughs> right? I mean, what does that mean you would have? Like, do you want to do these things in the future? Uh, yes, I do. Okay, and do you think you can? I mean, do, do you think, I don't mean you can, like, is it intellectually possible? What I mean is, uh, do you know how to take the steps to, to achieve what it is you want to achieve? Not really. <laughs> and have you done any mod design or level design or level creation or anything like that for existing games? Uh, no. <laughs> I tried to, um, but I just got too lazy and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe that laziness may have an effect on capacity to do things for sure. Um, yeah. So which, which game did you try if you don't mind me asking? I didn't try anything. Like I just, I thought I it was it's the Drungren Kinginger effect. I thought because like I was in another high school, like and with all these other disabled kids. I'll get to that later, maybe. But I was yeah in another high school with. Um, so I just thought, you know, fuck this. I'm just, I'm too smart for this. These people alienate me. So I want to go and go to this other school where, you know, it gets, and I thought I knew, I thought I was smart because I, um, because I passed the test and, um, I, and because, uh, these women were, these old women were like, you're smart. So I believed in them. And, uh, when, when I got educated, um, when I got, um, I, I was in for a world of shock. Like it's a lot harder than I thought it was. <laughs> uh, sorry, just before we go on, you said that you were in a class with disabled kids. Did you mean mentally disabled or physically disabled or both? Both, I guess. Um, I have cerebral palsy, mild spastic diplegia. Um, my arm, so like my arm, diplegia means like the lower legs and limbs are, yeah, so I have problems like walking, like, or I, I can walk, but it, my walking's very crooked and my muscles are stiff. Right. Well, I, I'm my sympathies for that. I mean, I know you've been living with it for a long time and uh, but I just really wanted to sympathize. That is a that's tough stuff to deal with. I think so. 
So if you wanted to become a video game designer, well, you do, right? So the steps, I don't know. I've never, well, I, I started learning how to program by, my first game was I tried to do Missile Command with ASCII text. Well, a bit of a challenge. Uh, but uh, I did create a sort of space exploration and combat game on the pet, you know, where you had limited to 2K of, <laughs> of coding ability. Um, but if you start learning how to mod games, and I think you can do that without a lot of coding, and I think that there's some third-party tools that let you do it without any coding, but you can sort of do level design and, and let your imagination run wild. And I know a lot of people learn how to do this through, like, Doom or uh, Unreal Tournament uh, and the sort of all the successive waves of those games. And they learned how to do mods. They would release their mods. And if their mods were really good, then they might get an internship at a, com a company to help. Or levels. If their level design or mods were really good, then they might get internships at a, com at a company to learn how to do that as a career. And some people can even parlay that into, like, they can make jobs out of that. Um, so you've sort of thought of doing mods or level design. Is that right? But never got around to it? Uh, what's a mod? A mod is where you create like a new weapon or um, like there are mods in, I don't know, I don't know if you even know these games, but in Skyrim, there are mods that give your horse armor and stuff like that. I'm sorry? Everyone knows Skyrim. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what people play. You could be a Pokemon guy for all I know, but, uh, but yeah, so, so the mods are, and you can release them online. You can actually even charge for them as well. Like it's a, you don't even have to join a company. You can create uh, mods and then sell them for a couple of bucks. I think you can sell them through steam or, or other places, but there's opportunities, you know, things that I could only have dreamt of when I was your age, but there are opportunities for getting into game design now that were not around when I was younger perhaps for the best, <laughs> but um, there's ways of learning these things and uh, sharing these things and getting feedback on these things that can lead to um, to a reasonable or above reasonable income. So, but, you know, it, it, the, the lazy part is, <laughs> is definitely an obstacle, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, I assume that at the beginning, it's more fun to play games than mod them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that would be... Just by the by, I mean, if you wanted to get into video game design, I think that would be a good approach to take. Just And look, I mean, tell you, man, I mean, everything, when you start learning it, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's so annoying. There's stuff that you, you know how it can be done, but you don't know how to do it. I remember the very first time uh, I started coding in Windows. This is with uh, a program called Microsoft Access. This was version 2.0. I think there was 1.1 and then there was 2.0. And I remember the very first time, uh, this is before you could get coding examples on the internet, really. This is before there was no type ahead, like you do a dot and then you get all the next commands. I remember sitting there for nine hours to try and do one thing, which was to open up a record and to change the value in a database, and then close that record. And it, it took me nine hours to learn to do that incredibly simple thing that now would take me about 30 seconds. Um, and so, you know, as far as the laziness goes, I mean, it, it's, it's really annoying <laughs> to learn how to do these, uh, these things. Um, but the good thing is, is that, you know, as you keep going, then 
you're stepping ahead of everyone else, right? Like all you have to do is keep persisting and you're just pulling ahead of everyone else because there's lots of people like you, I guess, in your past manifestation, but hopefully before this call, there's lots of people who will just let things stop them. Oh, there's something good on TV. Oh, this is getting really annoyed. Oh, I got to pee. And then on the way to pee, uh, I decided to check out the Google Play Store. And oh, look, there's a new version of Icewind Dale. I guess I'll try that out. And next thing you know, you know, you're 30. <laughs> and so um, if you just sit down and say, I'm not going to get up. I've literally done this. I did this with the, the first round of my theory on ethics. It's like I sat down and I said, and I don't like to sit that much. I like every time, like, it's like, oh, do we have to review something on the screen? Because I'd much rather walk around or, you know, while I've got Skype on a headset or whatever. But I don't like to sit. So I sit, for me, sitting is like a little kind of prison. It's why I do my shows sort of standing up. Because also, you know, when you see pictures of Rush Limbaugh in a, uh, a German tutu, uh, you say, well, maybe sitting is not the best thing for my long-term health prospects. But uh, so for me, when I say I'm going to sit down, I'm not going to get up until I've got this solved. That is uh, kind of a torture for me, so it really motivates me to get something done. And so if you just say, well, like, I'm going to sit down, I'm, I'm going to pee, and I'm going to get myself something to drink, I'm going to bring the water over to, or whatever it is, I'm going to sit down, and I'm not going to get up until I've solved this, whatever it is going to be. Uh, and then you just have to, you know, I, <laughs> I hate to say it, you just got to make yourself do it. You got to keep your word to yourself and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do anything else until I get this done, right? I mean, am I fairly right, Brandon, in assuming you've got some spare time? I think Brandon dropped off and he went offline. Well, I'm afraid we'll just have to leave Brandon with that piece of advice. Uh, as far as, uh, so I'll, I'll just do a little bit of thing about, I don't know what his IQ is. I don't know what his intelligence is. I, I have no idea. I, you know, the 92 based on an online test, I wouldn't say is particularly valid in any way, shape or form. It needs to be. It needs to be professionally administered. That's important, right? So as far as less intelligent people in a free society, well, they're going to be there. And less intelligent people need better social cues, right? Like, you know, when you're learning to dance, they actually have these, like, uh, footprints. <laughs> you put your feet into the, like, because you're learning how to dance, you need footprints to uh, learn how to do these things. And... Like in, in pianos, sometimes I think you can get like light up, teach yourself pianos and, and all this kind of stuff. And you can get, uh, you need more cues, better cues, which is why you need coaches and teachers and so on. So when you're less skilled at something, you need better social cues. And this is why it's so, to me, it's so vile. I'm going to take my headset off for a sec here. It's so vile, the degree to which um, Society has taken away the markers for less intelligent people. It's so unbelievably vile how this has occurred. So if you say, oh, man, you know, everything's relativistic and there's no truth, there's no right, there's no wrong, this and so on, right? Well, really, it doesn't make really smart people dumb to do that. But what it does is it removes clear markers for less intelligent people to achieve moral quality. Right. I mean, if you like if a pilot, I don't know, I'm just making things up here. But if a, if a pilot, let's say, is incredibly skilled, no, even better. If a blind man has to navigate around a maze, the blind man is going to do pretty well because he's experienced at navigating through a maze. 
And so think of smart people like people who are just habitually blind. <laughs> and so, but if you take someone who's had sight his whole life, you blindfold him and then you tell him to go through a maze really quickly, he's going to be really bad at it, right? And, you know, like for me in the middle of the night, I wake up, oh man, I got to pee. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to turn the light on. So I'm like, I'm going through, like, I don't want to brain myself on a door frame or something like that. So I'm feeling my way along like a squid on a coral reef trying to find my way. And yes, I sit because I'm a guy and it's nighttime and it's dark. <laughs> Can't do a tough voice when you're sitting and being. Anyway, so smart people are like habitually blind people getting through a maze. They can do it relatively efficiently. But when you blindfold someone who's had sight their whole life, they're really, really slow and inefficient at it. And so blind people do things better without sight than people who've had their sight on. And so when you take away these kinds of cues from people that, that people can really understand and process and work with, the less intelligent people end up suffering a lot more than the smart people. And the smart people also kind of know that relativism is bullshit. I mean, they just do. <laughs> they just do. Um, and so if you, and the reason I'm saying that is because, you know, if you say to a relativist, some really intellectual relativist, if you say, uh, uh, okay, then give me your money because no, I'm going to steal from your, they'll be like, no, you can't do that. And you know, like, all the, oh, social society's got to have structure to exist and all that kind of stuff, right? And so they know that to some degree, it's just a bunch of malarkey and, you know, it's just polysyllabic sounds you make with your breathing hole in order to get money from the government. Um, but less intelligent people take intellectual cues much more seriously. And so when you say to a smart person, everything's relative, they're like, yeah, that's kind of cool, but you know, I still got to obey the speed limit. <laughs> right? I mean, they, but when less intelligent people hear everything is relative, they take it very seriously. They don't have the intelligence to know when people are bullshitting them. And so it's you know, when, when really smart people bandy about this relativism and all this kind of stuff and, oh, it's all quantum phenomena and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, I'm sure that Deepak Chopra knows that his constant invocation of quantum theory to explain the mystical craft that he's peddling is nonsense. And you can see Richard Dawkins confronting him on this. But the less intelligent people are like, yeah, I guess quantum theory does mean that everything is relativistic and there's no truth and there's no right and wrong and so on. Now, Deepak Chakra laughs all the way to the bank, but the dumb people are left fundamentally or the less intelligent people are left fundamentally unmoored from reality. And that is the incredibly brutal thing that happens when intelligent people rip apart the linguistic fabric of reality is that intelligent people still remain relatively nimble, but less intelligent people go crazy. Like they really get damaged by this. So this is why I think the job of really smart people is to try to communicate complex and difficult topics in a way that's actionable by people of less intelligence. Of course it is, right? In that you want your grandmother to be able to use email without typing lines into a DOS prompt, which, you know, she's probably not gonna learn how to do. So the job of smart people, as I've talked before, is to gooey up intellectual and intelligent stuff so that it's consumable by the masses. So I'm certainly doing my part to try and make philosophy accessible to the masses. And, you know, let's say that this listener's IQ is valid, 
Uh, I don't think it is. But if it were, okay, he's listening to the show and he's getting value out of this show. So fantastic. I've been able to translate high IQ philosophy into 92 speak, right? I'm very proud of that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not as easy as, as it sounds. And so I think that when intellectuals, it's like, it's like when people use all of this $20 words to describe $2 things, um, they don't end up with um, ben benefiting the people who most need them, right? The, 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 the more concrete people, the people of lower intelligence, they need very clear cues. They need the footprints painted on the ground so they can do the dance moves. They need things, quote, dumbed down for me. You know, it's that old thing, uh, dumb it, can you dumb it down a shade, Doc? I think it's an old line from Homer Simpson in The Simpsons, you know, keep going down, you know. Or, you know, it takes great confidence to say to somebody, explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old, like a not very intelligent three-year-old. And that is the challenge. And if you are a high intellectual, high IQ intellectual, and you're not trying to find a way to get your work consumable by the masses, then you're like a doctor who refuses to treat anyone except healthy people. I mean, that's just not the job. The job is to translate the, the social, philosophical, and moral cues into as much of um, a consumable format, as great a consumable format as intelligence can possibly allow. And that takes a huge amount of work. You know, it takes, it takes far more work to build a GUI interface than it does to build a command prompt interface. Like I had a guy working for me uh, years ago uh, who took a, a course in, in coding, and the first thing they had to do was build an operating system. And, of course, it wasn't like the 40 million. I think it was Windows 2000 had 40 million lines of code or something. It's probably much more than that. I, mean, I know it's more than that for uh, Windows. Uh, what came after that? Windows 2000, uh, Windows NT, Windows 95, Windows 98, uh, Windows 7, Windows Vista, Windows 7, Windows 8, Windows 10 is coming and all that. And, and of course, the amount of, of code to build a user-friendly GUI interface is far more than it is to just build a command line interface. But that's the deal. That's the job. Computer people understand that. Intellectuals uh, very much are just passing complicated bits of Linux code back and forth and then wondering why the masses don't respect their contributions to society. But uh, so... Um, yeah, I, I think in a free society, there'll be far more opportunities for people of less intelligence because, you know, I mean, the wealth of society will be far greater and there will be um, the people of lesser intelligence are crippled at the moment because intellectuals are only talking to each other and not talking to the masses as much. And that means that the, the gifts that high intelligence can create and bring into being are not being translated and handed down to people of lesser intellectual ability. In other words, there's no GUI interface. There's no mouse. There's no voice command. There's no, nothing like that. And um, that's not great for people to be able to work with. I mean, if you've got a ZX80 interface, uh, you ain't going mainstream with your computers. Like, it's in the same way that like, like tablets and touch screens and so on uh, are just a great way of getting very powerful computing potential into the hands of people who otherwise probably wouldn't even use computers. I sort of think of the average, you know, 15-year-old girl taking a selfie. I mean, she would not be somebody up to their arms and trying to figure out how to reconfigure a Unix kernel to do what she wanted or anything like that. So uh, when you make things more accessible to people of a wider intelligence base, you're kind of doing your job as an intellectual. 
And uh, if you say wanted to start a smartphone company and say, well, I'm going to base my smartphone on DOS 4.0 because it's really, I mean, you don't have to pay anything for it. And uh, so, uh, and we need far cheaper processors because DOS runs on like a 286 or something. And so we'll just get tiny keyboards attached to tiny screens. They don't need to be touch screens. You could produce a phone very cheaply, but nobody would even remotely think of uh, backing that as an investor because they'd be like, where's the market? And this is sort of what I think of. You know, we, we do a, this show, we do a lot of research uh, into what some very smart people are saying and doing. And a lot of it is behind paywalls, and a lot of it is written in this really dense academia speak, and, and uh, it's not popularized. And then when we sort of trace the original academic article through the mainstream media, it's inevitably distorted according to various biases and, and you know, trying to track back this stuff. And it, it, it's really hard work. And um, I'd like to think that uh, intellectuals, uh, or as I think Tom Sowell points out, that they're, you know, anybody who earns their living by products of the mind alone, uh, intellectuals should really be facing the mass as a whole and translating high intellectual achievement into easily actionable and easily consumable digestible mental nuggets for the masses. And uh, that would happen in a free society because you wouldn't have this uh, giant uh, narcissistic wall of government money being forced out of the masses and into the hands of intellectuals so that they'll end up worshiping the state, right? Like to, if I, if I were to stand in front of people who had, you know, average or below average IQ, I would have to say, donate to me. Right. I mean, and I, I hope that people do if, if they find what I'm doing valuable. But my challenge then is I have to say, OK, well, what value can I provide to you if you have an IQ of 90 or 100? If you have a, an IQ of that, what value can I provide to you? Well, me delving into, you know, all the complexities of my theory of ethics or universally preferable behavior, <clears throat> that wouldn't provide you, I assume, much value. So what can I do to provide you value? How can you take the very highest achievements of human intellect and translate them into something which provides value to people of average or below average intelligence. That is a huge challenge. And uh, most intellectuals don't have to deal with that challenge because they're in universities or they're getting government grants or whatever. But um, the real geniuses are the people who say, how can I take this very complicated computer um, bits and bytes and burps and assembly code and machine language and all that, how can I take all of that and put it into something where people can play Pac-Man by swiping glass, right? I mean, that's a that's the huge engineering challenge, and um, that's the same thing that is occurring. Uh, for at least what I'm trying to do in the realm of philosophy is uh, uh, make uh, philosophy into a smartphone rather than a uh, something where you've got to hold wires together to call your friend, and he's the only other one who has a pseudo phone. So, uh, Brandon, I think uh, you're back at the moment. Is that right? Yep, he dropped off again. So All right. Well, we're going to have to move on to the next caller, but thanks a lot for calling in. All right. Up next is Paul. And Paul called in a little while ago. We had a debate about race and IQ. Um, and Paul wrote in again and wanted to know, have you noticed in yourself or in others that when some people set a goal for themselves, they also create obstacles to make themselves fail? And they do this, I think, because deep down they really don't want to achieve their goal and all the responsibility that comes along with it. I think it's because it's easier and perhaps more gratifying to have tried and failed, therefore earning the right to complain about how fate is to blame for their own misfortunes. 
almost like an elaborate attempt to frame the universe. This is essentially how fear of success manifests itself, I believe. Would you agree? And if so, why do you think humans do this? That's from Paul. Hmm. Well, what are your th- you've obviously put more thought into it than I have, which is not any kind of <laughs> a negative statement. But um, what are your what's your theory or your theories? Uh, well, I, I I think that's that's just it. It's a uh, it's this subliminal fear of having to deal with all the responsibilities that would come along with achieving whatever that goal may be. Can you think um, of a so more specific I think example for people? Oh, well, I think it's, it's, if you're trying to get from point A to point B and you find yourself taking all these random steps to get there, I realize this is not really any example. Um, it's almost like self-sabotage, you know, like you, you, you take, you take a path that underneath you subliminally know that it's not going to help you get there. Instead, it's going to help you trip on yourself. I, I, I run into this stuff with myself a lot more so when I was younger uh, than, than in more recent times where, um, and, and, it, and it would become sort of evident to me if I were working on a, on, on a computer problem and the, the computer would crash after having devoted like two hours into something and I didn't save it. And then after I start over, I realize, well, you know, I really should just do it this way and just, you know, I could do it and I do it in like 10 minutes. Um, That's a really sort of small, small example. Um, But I think in long term, it applies sort of long goals too, where you want to get to in life. And and I I experienced something, I I think I had the sort of the wake-up call when struggling financially. And me and my family had to make some really tough choices. Um, and we were sort of uh, in a situation where we were partially homeless. And and the clock was ticking really quickly uh, to the point where we would be going from partially homeless to completely homeless. And it was under that sort of stress that I realized I just can't fool around. I just got to, I, I have to solve this problem. It, it sort of forced Sorry, me. Sorry, so can I just pause you for a sec there? Uh, yeah. Wh- how how did your family end up almost homeless? Well, it's just um, a gradual decline of of work. Um, just just a real sort of gradual decline. Uh, I, but, I think but, but gradual is not an answer because gradual means and there's time to avert it, right? Right, right, yeah, and 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 uh, I think I I had this um, flaw in my thinking that things were going to turn around. Uh, I think I, I mean I've heard of a lot of entrepreneurs have this this problem where they they devote their their heart, their capital, their all into some something that they really believe in firmly, and they're like, no, this is going to be it. This this thing's going to work. This thing's going to work, right? And uh, it's this sort of denial of, you know, this isn't going to work. And uh, you really have to change direction if you really want to want to go somewhere. I mean, ultimately, it got we basically almost hit rock bottom. And uh, and it was in that 
in that moment that I had this sort of um, paradigm shift. And, and Wait, and I'm sorry, because this wasn't your family like your parents. This was you, your family, that you're... That's right. That's right, yeah. The head up. Yeah, me and my wife and, and kids. And uh, Holy crap, that's supposed to be pretty terrifying to your kids. They're, they're really uh, small, so they, for them it wasn't... They, I don't think they even remember it, you know? So they were like a three and, and five at the time. So, no, it, didn't, it wasn't hard for them. It was hard for my wife, that's for sure. It was hard for me. Um, but we through, and in that period of high stress, I invented something. Um, I was able to produce a product and and get ourselves out of that situation, you know. And so, basically, a really nice happy ending to the whole to the whole saga. But right. it was it, it was in that sort of high moment of stress and anxiety. This I just cannot fool around right now. I have I have this many days left. I have to I have to reach the target right now. I can't fiddle around. I can't fool around. And I don't know. I just I, I had that observation, and I wonder if other people do this to themselves as, as well, where they just take a path that is just not going to get. I think subliminally they know. I think we know inside that it's it's not. And I just posed the question that because I was wondering, is it just me that that thinks this? Um, I'm just curious if, if you had run into it or... Well, yeah, so there's, there's two things around sort of self, self-sabotage versus do people operate better under stress? Well, yeah. M- mild amounts of stress are very good for performance. Yeah. And so, yeah, people operate better with deadlines. People operate better with uh, a certain amount of stress, not perpetual terror or whatever, but people do operate... <laughs> um, uh, you know, some of the, um, you know, when I want to grow the audience, when I sort of want to push through to do new things, I mean, I can't keep doing the same show over and over again, I would get bored, and it would be sort of an insult to the listeners. So I want to try new ways of doing things. I want to try new ways of communicating, we want to take risks with the show. And that keeps a sort of mild a bit of anxiety, and is this going to work or whatever. And I think that's productive. <laughs> that's how things should be. Um, and so I, I think that when you're pushing the envelope and you're trying to do new things, it also keeps the right kind of listeners around because mm. people who want to hear the same stuff over and over again would not be, I think, the kind of people who I'd want to talk to forever, right? I mean, it's fine for mm-hmm. a while, but I know that we're constantly just like, now we're going this way, now we're going this way, here's something new, here's something different, you know, and, and that's interesting and exciting for me. Uh, I know that it, some listeners like it, some some don't and so on, but, you know, and it's not like I'm only in this to please myself, but I certainly can't do a great show if I feel like I'm doing the same show over and over. So so I think that the challenge is, is always important. And, and like if you want to get better at anything, like if you want to become a really great tennis player, you can't keep playing the same not good tennis player over and over again. You have to continually be operating where you don't know if you're going to win or lose, right? And so that, that possibility, without possibility of failure, there is no excellence. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an excellent walker because I can walk without falling down, you know, easily. <laughs> now, when I was a kid learning how to walk, well, I had to really concentrate on it. And so I don't really have a chance of failing at walking. And I don't think there's anyone who sees me going down the street saying, that guy is an Olympic class walker. That's the best walking I've ever seen. I envy that walking. I wish I could be his inner thighs rubbing together as he walks. 
right? I mean, nobody does that because it's like, hey, it's just walking, right? Why is Duke Nukem watching you walk down the street is what I <laughs> Duke Nukem watches me do everything. <laughs> All right. Especially when I take a dump the size of Duke Nukem. <laughs> it echoes. It reaches back up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it grabs me. It spins. It pinatas. And I'm stronger and better for it. You should have the movie trailers on the side, Steph. It is unflushable. <laughs> Duke Nukem is unflushable in a town where. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's an old Janine Garofalo joke. Like every single trailer one summer was like, in a town where. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um, but um, mm. so you, you have to have the possibility of failure. I mean, I do a certain amount of, of work before the shows, and sometimes it's scripted, but there's always tangents. But I always want to have the capacity of failing when I'm having a conversation. Like, if, that's why I say, oh, am I right? Or, and I'm willing to, you know, push the envelope and talk about stuff other people don't want to talk about. Because, A, I think it's important and, and healthy and helpful. And, B, um, there's the possibility of, of failure. Um, and... And that's why comedians kind of have to tell new jokes, right? Because, I mean, <laughs> they, right? the chicken across the road is not going to get you an amphitheater, right? Because they have to have the possibility yeah. of, of failure. And yeah. um, so I think it is really important, you know, where there's no excellence, there is, where there's no failure, there's no excellence, right? I mean, you you can't really fail on welfare. You can't really fail in the post office. Government unions can't really fail. and And so there's just no... No particular excellence. And um, the American American society is like, oh, man, people fall through the cracks. It's like, yeah. And that's why, because there are valleys, we have mountains in, in the West. And, you know, there, I read a, a book. Gosh, not even the whole thing. Um, East minus West equals zero, which is basically if you take away all the stuff that the Soviet Union stole from the West – through industrial espionage and through um, the Communist Party uh, and through just a variety of subterfuges and subterranean channels, the Soviet Union basically invented nothing. <laughs> and and if you look at the more socialist countries um, in, in Europe, I mean, the, the age of their innovation is done. It's done uh, in general. And uh, yeah, there are exceptions, but for the most part, the innovations are coming out of America. America is still the economic engine that drives most progress. And yes, uh, the the sort of um, Japanese and Chinese cultures are very efficient, but not quite as innovative. They tend to be more photocopies than originals. And so you, if you like new stuff that's cool, then you have to accept a society with a wider disparity between rich and poor and with a greater capacity for failure. And you can eliminate that capacity for failure and you eliminate progress. I mean, this just, it's just the yin and yang of, of what it is to be alive. If you, um, if you eliminate failure in an organism, you, you prevent evolution. And, 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 any, and you end up with dysgenics, right? Because the number of, of negative mutations or harmful mutations are far greater than those that are beneficial, right? Like if you're blindfolded and spun around and then you throw basketballs across a basketball court at a hoop, you're going to have far more misses than hits. And it's the same thing with genetics. And so if you remove um, the capacity for failure from an organism, it immediately begins to decay. It immediately, immediately dysgenics kick in. Now, I know that you can only take biological metaphors so far when it comes to the free market. I mean, 
you know, there's an old statement in, in if you're on 100% commission, you eat what you kill. That's what it's called, right? I mean, you, you got to kill something, you got to make a sale in order to have food. But of course, if you lose in an economic competition, the winners don't get to eat you, right? Unless it's the Hunger Games or something. <laughs> but we understand that biologically, if you remove selective pressures from a species, it immediately begins to decay, to fall apart, to, to lose its vigor and vitality. And everybody in the universe wants everyone else to be competing madly, right? <laughs> I mean, to get your Obama phone, right? You you got to have the uh, competition in the um, uh, in the free market in the in the realm of cell phones and cell technology and and wireless technology. That competition has to be fierce, and so everybody wants everyone else to be competing fiercely. To get the best music, you need really fierce competition among musicians. To get the best movies, you really need fierce competition among movie makers. You get the point, right? Yeah. And so everybody wants to consume things of extraordinary high quality, which means that they really want everyone else to be operating at the edge of their ability. They want everyone else to be competing fiercely. And they themselves wish to be excluded from the necessity to compete fiercely. Does that make sense? Like everybody wants everyone else to produce fantastic, wonderful, amazing, cool things for them by competing fiercely with each other for that person's time, attention, and money. But that person wishes to be excluded from that same fierce competition. That is a universal human, I would assume, mm -hmm. biological demand. Does mm -hmm. that sort of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I it, it never that that whole the whole principle of of the free market and how it is an engine of innovation never became clearer than that time in my life. You know, because it became personal. Right. I, You're I, like, you know. I'm fucked. So brain, <laughs> come up with something. And the brain is like, oh, are we fucked? Okay. Here's the Mona Lisa. Fine. I mean, <laughs> creativity is like, it's like a wounded rat. It only attacks when cornered. Right? I mean, it, like, otherwise it just runs away. Um, and, and do you know that old MacGyver statement? Necessity is the mother of invention. You, you mm. never know how creative you can be until you're cornered, right? That's right. Yeah. That reality is is really important, and that there can be people who say i don't want i don't want a competition i don't want a free market it's okay, well then buy stuff from socialist countries that's your punishment mm. you know only consume government services and and don't buy any cell like you have to buy cars that were made in russia in nineteen fifty seven and right you have to you just you can't use anything that's been produced by fierce competition and you know, there, there's no such thing as American Idol where everyone gets a prize. Like, nobody would watch that show. <laughs> and people love, they love this, they love consuming all of the incredible stuff that comes out of incredibly fierce competition. But then when they have to compete, they're like, why? Well, I, I don't want to. It's like, I get it. Of course you don't want to. Of course you want the, the fruit of everyone else competing and you don't want to have to compete. I mean, of course, the thief wants everyone else to have stuff so he can steal it, right? He wants to have everyone else respect property rights so he can violate them. That's the whole point. We're, we are very – like we create these rules and then immediately we start to look for these exceptions. That's just how the brain works. And, and if you, you've got kids, right? So you know what that's like, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, like if you say, oh, I always do this. Well, not always, <laughs> right? Uh, oh, I really have to go to work right now. Well, you don't have to. Yeah. You have to eat. You have to – breathe, but you don't have to go to work. You want to go to work, right? And so every time you set up a rule with kids, they immediately will try and find the exception. And that's mm -hmm. human nature because there's no better way of surviving than getting everyone else to follow rules that you yourself don't have to follow, i.e. Mm -hmm. government, priesthood, 
monarchy, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. And so this is one, by the by, this is the reason why we can't have a government, is that we are so incredibly well adapted to creating rules and, and inflicting rules on others and then creating magical exceptions for ourselves that can never be talked about. We're so good at doing that as a species. It's so incredibly profitable. It is such a fantastic way of flourishing as a species that government just creates such a bottomless temptation to, to achieve that, that it can't simply can't be allowed to exist because it will always be used by this incredibly amazing capacity. I mean, do you have, can you think of one with your kids? I was just thinking, trying to think of one for mine uh, where you, you set up a rule or, or you, and then immediately they look for the exception. Yeah, I feel like they do that every day. I'm trying it's to continual. Think of a good one. Yeah, and it's instinctive. It's like my my. I didn't have to train my daughter to do this. <laughs> uh, she just immediately looks for uh, the moment I say, you know, I have to really couch my stuff. Like I have to basically run her through bell curves, right? Because I say, well, you know, people are kind of like this. Well, not everyone, right? It's like, <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Now well, right? Not like, and so every time I, I have to say, well, you know, not everyone is like this. There's kind of a tendency and this and that. And she's like, well, where is it on the bell curve? I'm like, Arr. <laughs> but, uh, you know, try this. You know, try this around your average six-year-old and say, well, all people do this. Well, not everyone, right? They're always looking for that exception to the rule. And, uh, yeah. of course, since government is a giant exception to the rule of virtue, um, this is why people are so good at manipulating government because that's just – the, the, the genes that weren't really good at doing that could not compete against the ones that are. Mm. So I know that we've drifted a little bit. To, to go back to your original question, self-sabotage, yeah. I, I like self-sabotage. I do. Yeah. I, I think self-sabotage is a wonderfully underrated aspect of human <laughs> nature. I do. Okay. I think that self-sabotage is, is wonderful and should be encouraged as much as possible. <laughs> So why is that? Oh, self-sabotage is fantastic because I want to, like when I go and see, I don't know, let's see, what well, concert I saw a couple of years ago, Colin James, great singer, great Canadian uh, guitarist, and uh, he's done a lot of different kinds of styles, right? Now, I don't know anything about Colin James, <laughs> right? Other than he had a bad hairdo on Letterman years ago, but um I assume that there were a bunch of people who all liked playing guitar. I mean, did you ever try and play an instrument? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I actually, do so, play, I actually play, play the guitar. Yeah. You, you play the guitar. Okay. But you're not like a guitar god, right? No. <laughs> right. I mean, because you're on the show. So, so Colin <laughs> James, um, there were lots of people who picked up guitars, and I did. Uh, I picked up guitar, I took piano lessons when I was younger, I played the violin for 10 years, and as a musician, I make a really good philosophy podcaster. That's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's where I should be, right? And I, you know, I went to the National Theatre School, I wrote plays, I, I acted and all that, and as a playwright and an actor, again, I make a very good philosophy podcaster. I'd had a lot more success in the business world, but I'm still happier, and I think I'm better at this, and it's more valuable. So, was I self-sabotaging when I didn't play much guitar or didn't really, I mean, I worked at it for a while. I was like, man, this hurts my fingers. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I don't have very long fingers. Like I don't have the Brian May full on spider hands, you know, which I think are really helpful for playing guitar. A lot of people who don't, right. But um, self-sabotage is fantastic because 
you want that resistance. You want that resistance in people because otherwise they'll be applying their abilities to something that they're not particularly motivated at or good at. I mean, I almost think I almost think you we should we should as a society encourage people to fail more. Because what people are really good at and what really gets them motivated, which by the by is generally what's really best the best for society. Right? So for instance, like let's the, the, there was um Mindy Kaling, who's um a comedian, she had a brother who passed himself off as black. He's Indian. She's Indian. Obviously, he's Indian. He passed himself off as black, and he went to a couple of years of medical school, and then he dropped out, right? Mm. Well, I wish he'd self-sabotaged his first day on medical school because then maybe they could have got someone else in who could have become a doctor, right? Mm. So I think uh, if you say to people, I'm not that you would, but if you say to people, oh, you know, as a guitarist, you're pretty bad, right? It stinks, right? But at the same time, should you, I mean, again, unless you just take sort of innate pleasure in playing guitar, fine, or whatever, or you want to be that guy who pulls out a guitar at every party until people beat you to death with your own guitar, because it's like, we want to chat. I can't do any more Van Morrison. Again, you can't make me. But um, you want to uh, encourage people to not do things, because then if they really push through, boy, they're committed, right? Mm. And so self-sabotage, yeah, I think it's great. Like I, I remember going out with a girl many years ago who was terrible at exams. You know, she, she like every time there was, she just would freak out and her mind would go blank and this and that. It's like, well, you shouldn't be in school then because school is a whole lot of exams, right, in, in college. <laughs> and, you know, if she's she was studying engineering and it's like, I think engineering can be kind of stressful because, you know, stuff's got to stay up and not kill people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. if you're freaked out about exams, I don't know how good at building bridges that are supposed to keep trucks and ships not together, <laughs> right, to keep them apart. I, I think it's good. Like, so this is that self-sabotage that needs to be overcome? No, I'd say she's going in the wrong direction. You know, to me, you've you've probably had this thing where you're before GPS is, right? I used to be uh, in in business even before you could get like, I don't know, there was some Microsoft product, MapQuest or something that you could, before even that. And you'd have to like get these paper maps, purdies and stuff, right? And and you'd have to go and buy, you're going to Philly for a business meeting, you got to go and buy the map for Philly and then you got to figure out how you're going to get there and all. And, and I'd be driving looking for a building and I'd get this uneasy feeling that I'd gone too far, right? Now, am I self-sabotaging? No, I, I should... I should turn around or stop or ask for directions. That uneasy feeling that you're not doing the right thing is important. It's, it's, it's not trying to screw you up. It's trying to help you, right? So this, this woman who was studying engineering, I don't know if you ever became an engineer or it doesn't matter. But the idea, it's like, well, I have this inhibition. I'm self-sabotaging. I'm, I'm, you know, it's like, well, no, maybe you just like, would be a bad engineer. Maybe you don't really like it. Maybe it's not really your thing. Maybe whatever, right? In which case, you should listen to yourself, like self-sabotage for a reason, right? Which is, you may be heading in the wrong direction. I think self-sabotage should really be encouraged. Really be encouraged among people. No, that's bad. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, man, that song you wrote, you know, like in that Tina Turner movie when Ike Turner's writing a bunch of songs and she's like, man, they all sound the same. I need another. I mean, it's just not good, uh, not good music. Sorry. I wish I wish that more bands had managers who said, "Oh man, this is terrible." 
<laughs> like you should just stop whatever you're doing. Remember Joshua Tree? That was a good album. What you're doing now? I don't even know, right? But um, uh, I think that um, pushing back against what people want to do is is very helpful because a, a lot of people want to do stuff for not the right reasons, not because they're internally or intrinsically motivated, but because they think it'll make them a lot of money or they think it's cool or, or this is what their parents are encouraging them to do or whatever, right? And I don't know, self-sabotage, unless you're just pathologically full of self-hatred, in which case, you know, obviously major therapy and all that is, is probably the way to go. <laughs> but no, I, I think that more people should be told that they suck at stuff. And so do, sorry, go ahead. Where does that? So what about fear of success? Have, have you thought about that? Good. That means that you should not aim at that kind of success properly, right? Mm. You know, like, like, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I even used this scene in my novel, The God of Atheists. And, and I won't go into it. But I, I, but I also pointed out that it was a cliched scene. You know, the scene where um, the person is up on stage for the first time. And they've practiced and they've got the microphone and they're going to sing and they don't know if they'll be able to sing and they don't know if, if, if the words will come out and, they, they, and then they, they break through and right. And everyone has this <laughs> fantasy, like I'm terrified of doing something, but if I just, I get up there, I say, whoa, right. But, you know, <laughs> I would like to present the court with exhibit A, which is Kelly Clarkson's American Idol audition, right. She just played Toronto uh, last night and, uh, very charismatic woman. What an unbelievable set of vocal cords she has. Like, I'm glad the baby gave her back her voice because she is just like God's gift to humiliate a a mediocre singers like myself. But uh, she's, you know, she, she's written her own songs. She's, she's made a fortune. She's um, married to Reba McIntyre's son, I think. And she's very charismatic. She's very emotionally open. She actually started crying during one of the songs. The compassion is is fantastic. And that's great. Now, if you watch her initial audition, she's hilarious. I mean, she's like, I don't know if she ended up standing in, sitting in Randy's lap or pretending that she was going to take over the the um the session or whatever and i haven't in forever but i bet you if i went back and listened to some of my very early shows i wouldn't be like oh those are terrible right i'd be like oh man that's pretty good i can see why people started listening that makes sense to me right and so kelly clarkson i don't think she ever she i mean i'm not saying she was never nervous of course she was and probably still is and so on but she wasn't like this sweat laced moment of can i even go on or Catherine mcphee sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow, a beautiful, beautiful performance on one of the American Idol shows. And the piano started off wrong or too quiet. She just basically had to start without the piano accompaniment, hoping that she was in the right key, hoping it was going to work out and all that. That's pretty tough. You know, one of the biggest speeches I've given so far was at the next web conference. I lost my speech. I lost my whole speech. (laughs) I had the whole, like, bullet points all written down, things I wanted to hit. I mean, I lost a speech somewhere in the morning, put it down somewhere, someone moved, I put it down somewhere, someone must have picked it up thinking it was theirs or whatever, in the washroom, I think. So it's like, okay, well, I'll just go do the speech, you know what I mean? Like, I wasn't like, oh, I've lost my speech, what am I going to do? And I get up there, and I'm paralyzed, and I'm sitting there for three minutes, and people are like, whoa, is he going to say something? Like, that's just not how it works. <laughs> and so... 
as far as self-sabotage and, and paralysis and so on, so people love the scenes where people are terrified and then they break through and it's all perfect after that, right? Because they fantasize that there's just this moment and then you just, you break through and, and then everything's great. But, you know, if, if you're really scared of doing something, if you really don't want to do something, there may be a pretty... Uh, there may be a good reason for that, which is the unease that you've driven past the address you're looking for, and you shouldn't just push through it. You mm-hmm. should sort of stop and circle around and say, do I even want to be heading in this way at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it must be a natural uh, nervousness that's part of the the human condition that you would much rather be, uh, most people would much rather be a, a follower than a leader. You know, because one of them has a lot more responsibility uh, well, wait, hang on, hang on. than the other. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean people would rather be a... No, they want the pay of the leader and they want the ease of life of a follower. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, well, that's yeah, the same yes, thing yes. that everybody else wants. They want everyone else to compete, but they don't want to compete. Right? And so everybody wants to... Like, they look at the CEO and they say, man, that guy made $5 million last year, Right? I want that $5 million. It's like, yeah, bet you do. <laughs> A, do you have the capacity to do it? And B, do you have the will to do it? Right? Because those guys make a huge amount of money after they put in 20 hours, sorry, 20 years of 80-hour work weeks, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't just, I mean, for the most part, you don't pop up and just become a CEO, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean I, I've, in the business world, like I've been around some people, oh, man, like, just brilliant. Just like, I got to write down everything you're saying, right? I mean, people who come in and look at your business plan or look and just say, boom, 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 right? And you're like, wow, you just saved me like a year of my life and possibly saved this business in five fucking minutes, <laughs> right? I mean, <Yeah>. wow, <laughs> that's great. You know, and what's that, what's that worth? You know, saving versus a business working versus not working because somebody spent five minutes telling you something. It's worth a lot of money, right? Um, And those people are very rare and they're really worth it, right? And, uh, you know, it's like the movie stars or whatever, right? I mean, you know, you you could save a lot of money hiring your gardener to be the front man of your band, even if he can't sing and is 80. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we we want the resources to go to the people who most want it, Mm. who, who are best at it. And so self-sabotage seems to be like an entirely great idea because we'd all be rock stars. We'd all be, you know what I mean? Like we'd all win the lottery. We'd all, I don't know, but that's not really a skill-based thing, but we'd, we'd all want stuff that we may not be that great at. I mean, how many people go, I mean, lots of people go to a concert and say, wow, I'd love to be up there on stage, right? But uh, they're probably not suited for it. They're probably not great at it. They're probably not. It's going to be a waste of resources for them to try and pursue it. So I think self-sabotage is a very noble and healthy part of um, the ecosystem of how to get things done efficiently in a society. Mm. Yeah, and I think that the kind of sabotage that I was that I was observing is one where person A is has all the skills and abilities. Uh, to be able to achieve this this great thing, maybe it's a singer or a comedian. Um, you know, just just pick any comedian, and let's say th- th- that uh, instead of having said the jokes that they said, they had taken a path that was really not well suited for them. 
um, and it turned them into a lousy comedian because they took that path. So it's almost like I can get to my destination and I'm going to pick the path with the pothole uh, between me and the destination. Um, like why would uh, why would anybody do that? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Can you give me a con? You, yeah. you, you, you see the abstractions, and I generally want concrete examples. <laughs> no, I wish I'd, I wish I'd uh, prepared a little better. Um, like you say, someone has the ability to be a great comedian, except they fail at being a great comedian. Well, then by definition, they don't have the ability to be a great comedian, right? Yeah. It's I mean, if you've ever been to amateur hour, there are some people whose skills would, let's just say, best be applied elsewhere. Okay, let, let me give you this example. Let's say somebody is a great comedian, and they're already great. They've really worked on their skills. But in order for them to really make a living off of it, um, they would have to really get themselves exposed in a big way. And all of a sudden, an opportunity opens up where that will be possible, like they'll get... Um, uh, yeah, so they have this opportunity that's opened up to put them in the limelight, so to speak. And they, for whatever reason, they come up with some way to intellectualize why this would be a bad idea. But in fact, this would be the thing that they really need to do in order to take themselves to that next that next place. Um, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Who's to say that next place is good for them, or what? The, what's really right? Well, sure. That's a, that's, that's a question in and of itself. But what if that's what, what if they do want to achieve that sort of, I want to, you know, be a famous comedian and, uh, I want to be a, a wealthy comedian. Um, what if that is, you know, part of their, their aspiration? Um, okay, aspiration, I get that for sure. I get that. But who's to say that, that's the best thing for them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, listen, I don't know if you've spent any time around comedians. <laughs> Not always the happiest people in the world, <laughs> but it is as possible, right? <laughs> and um, and let's say that they become very famous, right? And very rich. Maybe they'll flame out. Maybe they don't have a social support system. Maybe they're too needy. Maybe they're not narcissistic enough to survive that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've spent any time in the public eye, but it's a bit freaky. Sure, yeah. Right? So it's yeah, a little I mean, freaky, it's... even in my own minor way. A little bit in the public eye. Yeah, public eye kind of doesn't blink very much. It's kind of bloodshot and, you know, it, <laughs> it turns red on a full moon. So maybe, you know, maybe there's a part of them that's like, why would you, why would you, why would you want to be out? Like most celebrities are, as far as I understand it, have been remote diagnosed as narcissists. So could it be then that maybe our, this profound survival instinct is, is where this fear of, you know, quote unquote success comes from? Like the, the modern, you No, know, no, it's not fear of success. <laughs> It's not fear of success. Listen, I'll tell you this. Let's say somebody called me up tomorrow and said, Steph, we want you to do a primetime television show, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> now, would you think that I would be interested in that or excited by that? That's a good question. I mean, only you could answer it. I would assume so. It would give you a much bigger platform, right? It would, absolutely. It would give me a much bigger platform. I'd get to talk to a lot more people. No question. 
So would you like if I said if I backed away from something like that or I rejected something like that, would this fall into your category of a fear of success? So explain again, what was the what was the offer that was placed? Uh, Steph, we want to put you, I don't know, on C, I don't know who's, I don't even know who's big in television these days. I mean, who, Fox or whatever, right? I think Fox is number one of the, we're going to give you your own primetime TV show. You can do anything you want, any guest you want. We're going to build you a million dollar <laughs> set and we're going to broadcast you into millions of homes across, uh, hundreds, sure. tens of millions of homes across the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, if I said no to that, would this fall into your category of a fear of success? Well, I guess it would depend on why you're saying no. Um, you know, if, if, it, it would fall in my category if, if you actually wanted something like that, but, but still said no. So, Mike, if I got that offer and I was on my way to say yes to it and you were in the room, what would happen? <laughs> well, you know, I was guaranteed in the no position. Then you're like, primetime on Fox, there's a, there's a devilish pull. There really <laughs> is. But the answer is no. <laughs> No, 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 no. Yeah, I, I tell you, I, I, I am perfectly happy with the show the way that it is. More money, yeah. more problems, right? Philosophers don't do very well in the public eye. Because the better a philosopher you are, the more you harm the interests of more people in society, right? But sorry, you, you were going to say? Did you ever, when you were uh, embarking on the, the, the venture that you're currently on with, with Freedom Mind Radio, um, was there ever a, a lingering concern about putting yourself into the public eye the way you have? A lingering concern? Why, yes. There was more yeah. than a lingering concern. It so was there was a, a little fear, concern. a little hesitation, yeah, right? Because yeah, I would define I mean, just, what you have as, yeah, I would define what you have as success, Um so was I'm doing was, I'm doing everything I want at the level that I want to do it at. Yeah, that is. I mean, that, you can't get more successful than that, right? That's and that's what I mean. Best. So do I have a fear of success? I think a desire for self-preservation <laughs> probably has something to do with it, right? <laughs> you know who was yeah. a really famous philosopher? Socrates. Everybody mm. knows his name, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want that cheers opening, right? You you don't want to be the philosopher where everybody knows your name. You just, you don't want to be that guy, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. unless you're spouting the party line as a whole. No, the, the well-known philosophers are usually the ones with uh, pennies on their eyes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. If someone were to jump off the Empire State Building tomorrow, when they finish doing the chalk outline, everyone would know his name for a day. But uh, yeah. it's not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, look, and, and as a philosopher, you're, you're allowed, like, you're allowed one quirk card in general, like if you're a philosopher, <laughs> right? You're allowed, like, you get one quirk card, use it wisely, right? It's your one get-out-of-jail-free card, you get one. So, like, you can be Richard Dawkins and you can be the atheist guy, right? <laughs> So you can be as conventional as and conservative and mainstream in every other, but you're allowed one. Okay, he's the atheist guy, right? You get that, right? Um, or you can be like J.R.R. Tolkien, who's like mainstream and everything, but kind of like an anarchist, right? So you get one one thing. You get one card that you're allowed to play. Unfortunately, I'm playing with a full deck <laughs> of, of cards that nobody wants me to have, right? <laughs> 
Let's talk about race. Let's talk about the fallen tree family. Let's talk about atheism. Let's talk about no government. I mean, it's like it just goes on and on, right? And because people will, it's like, I'm trying to think of a, of a good way of putting it. It's like they'll accept one crazy card from you from their perception, right? They'll accept one crazy card from you. You start playing with two or three or four, people get very, very aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. Because like they'll run away, like if if you like atheists, right? Like you 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 push back their crazy or they've had their crazy pushed back from religion, and where does it run to? It runs to the government. And then you say, well, you know. Government's no good, right? And then maybe it runs to their family. Say, well, you got to judge the family morally and objectively and this and that and the other. Like crazy will fuck you up when cornered. Mm. And this show does not let your crazy go, like run anywhere. We will corner your crazy and we will take it out back and we will put a fucking bullet in its head. Sorry, that's just the way the show runs. Or we'll coax it into eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and rationale, whatever metaphor you want to do, right? Mm. And uh, or or you know feminism or like radical feminism or or socialism or like people people's like irrational insanity always needs a place to run. And if it's like blocked here, it's like water, you know. It's like if it's blocked, it just runs somewhere else, right? Mm. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't believe in Jesus, but ghosts are real, right? <laughs> oh, did they disprove the Loch Ness monster? Oh, is that me being subducted by an alien? I think it is, right? Mm. And and so, uh, like on the left, they're like, uh, they 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 oh, you know, like we're doing the truth about Bernie Sanders, the um, standard, sorry, and um, it's like, well, he wants to reduce the military. That sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> Oh, wait, no, because he's a socialist, then he wants massive amounts of government spending and worker control of the industries and so on, right? And, of course, people say, well, are you in favor or not in favor of workers' control of industries? It's like, I I don't know. I don't want anyone using guns to achieve whatever they want. Is that okay? (laughs) You know? Uh, Are you in favor of going to the Olive Garden for a date? I don't know. I just don't like rape. But like whatever you want to do when you're not raping is your business. Fantastic. You know, less rapey. Maybe that includes Olive Garden. I don't know. But, you know, if if it's if you want to start a business, then don't ask me. Start the damn business. Give workers control of it and, you know, tell me how it goes. I didn't know. Don't ask me. But um, I just want to say worst Olive Garden commercial ever. (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right more olive garden (laughs) this is not i thought the other day mike whatever happened to that i did this little thing on on coke how good coke was when i was a teenager (laughs) i think we we put that out somewhere put it out put that out soda soda not cocaine that wasn't doing live i I can't i can't imagine why our show is not bigger mike i think we put that out somewhere (laughs) that was a long time ago (laughs) i'm thirsty again anyway um why, so, what did we you know, do with I, this I, one random show in the middle of 3,000 shows? That was uh, so, ago? Mike, they're all <laughs> random. But anyway, um, <laughs> so this idea that, that uh, you know, they put me on TV and I'm going to have all this production quality and, and I'm going to just, oh, uh, does your crazy to run to religion? Okay, we'll take apart religion. Oh, does it now run to the state? Okay, we're going to take apart the state. Oh, does it run to environmentalism? Let's take apart environmentalism. Oh, does it run? And eventually the crazy genes in people which want to survive and not 
get wiped out, they'll just turn and they would fuck me up. Mm. Guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is great. I, I you know, I, humanity cornered, insanity cornered, which is pretty much a synonym these days, but human insanity cornered will make you hate the human race. Right. You, you've got to give it's, you know, there's this this uh, oriental thing or this this I think it's in Japan in particular, this saving face, right? Face saving. Right. Mm. Right now, it's so early in training human beings to be even remotely rational that you have to give insanity the capacity to save face. Mm. Right. It's the only way to live among human beings and think that you're among remotely civilized people is to not corner them. Because when you corner them, they reveal such unbelievable pre-medieval ugliness that you literally probably couldn't even get out of bed like you just it's just willed ignorance of the true nature of the people around you that you have to give their out a crazy a crazy and out otherwise it's full frontal right i mean you know if if the demon can hop from body to body then it's not going to turn and fight but if it's in the last body it can go to and you've got it cornered well you're in for a very ugly ugly time of it and Mm -hmm. um so no, I uh, yeah I would not. <laughs> hey, you want a TV show? I really don't. <laughs> I really this is exactly yeah. the right way for me to do it. This is right for philosophy. It's not cornering people. Uh, there's too many bodies of philosophers throughout history. I know where it leads when you corner crazy. You've just got to plant the seeds, right? But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's not pretty when when you when you strip away. I don't know if you've ever had this with someone where you sort of relentlessly or I shouldn't say relentlessly that sounds really sort of cruel or whatever but you um when you uh I'm trying there's a there's a good word for it give me give me just a sec and it'll it'll come to me persistently you persistently undo their defenses mm. or you persistently undo their lies or you persistently undo their excuses right I don't know if you've ever done that with someone. And, and if you have, do you know what's when you get to that last one, what happens? Well, they, they get very upset. And they just want yeah, to not, what conti- not, not continue. Take? Well, I, I've never had a, a, an instance where it became violent. It just, you, you could potentially no, lose that. You would lose that friendship potentially. But they'd get very aggressive, right? It doesn't mean that they beat you up or anything like that. I get yeah. that. But they yeah. would usually, when you keep peeling back people's defenses, you get to a core trauma that is the, the fight or flight that all of the bullshit and all of the language and all of the superstructures that we build, whether it's religion or nationalism or whatever it is, when you peel all that stuff away, there's a core trauma in people that they have to want to deal with themselves. If you just peel mm. that away and then you, you touch that raw trauma in people, mm. they explode in rage. And that has been my sort of consistent and persistent experience throughout the years. And I, you know, I know enough of, I, it's not everyone, right? But it doesn't have to be everyone, right? And uh, if, you, if you, just keep, you just keep peeling layers away, what happens is people's lack of identity becomes clear to them and they experience a death panic, mm. like a non-existence panic. 
and they lash out at you like you're attacking them with a weapon because you're attacking them with the weapon of reason, which shows the non-existence of irrationality at the core of their trauma, and they just erupt. And can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, what advertiser would want to be on this show? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, anybody who offered me a TV show, you know, is that old Groucho Mark? I wouldn't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member. Anybody whose business judgment thought it would be a great idea to hand a television show to me would be somebody whose business judgment would be so bad, <laughs> right? That that I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to do business with them. Steph, do you want to hear modeling contracts? I don't know, but I sure as hell don't want to do business with you if you think I'm a good candidate for a hair modeling contract other than the before of the hair club for men picture. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as like fear of success or anxiety about success or whatever, I don't know. A lot of successful people aren't happy. And, um, right, right. So it, it's not necessarily like, well, you've got to reach the pinnacle of success. And if you don't, you're, you know, that's a failure. That's a problem. That's like, no. Uh, I, 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 my, my goal is not to, to reach the maximum of success. My goal is to reach the maximum of happiness. Mm. And I can't picture being happier doing something else other than what I'm doing at the moment, if that makes sense. Yeah. And do I you could ever... see how it could go bad, but the idea that uh, that would be a big step up and forward and that's got to be the inevitable next thing is like, nope. <laughs> I don't think it does. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, obviously, you're, um, you know, far more advanced from a maturity level than, say, someone who's just entering their career like a like a 20-year-old um, or someone in their late teens. And I think uh, I think some of that lack of maturity that you obviously already have because you have the experience, you have the years, um, when it's not present in a younger individual, um, they may be more prone to 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 make the the wrong choices. You know, like take the show that was offered to them uh, when in the end that doesn't really lead to the to, you know, the success that they really wanted or the happiness that they really wanted. Um, yeah, so. I mean, you know who had great hair? James Dean. Mm -hmm. Great head of hair. I don't know if you've ever seen, you've probably seen <laughs> pictures, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, great hair, right? And, and you know, probably when he was growing up, uh, other kids around were like, wow, it's a good looking guy. He's got great hair. And so he became a movie star and he drove really fast and he died. Mm -mm. so great hair i don't know yeah did you did when you were growing up um in in high school were there like really really i guess there were there's always one right or maybe more than one really attractive like sexy as hell woman right sure yeah and, of course, everyone else is like, wow, I wish I were that good looking, right? Well, I'm sure, yeah, that's, that, that's probably right. what all the other women were thinking, yeah. Yeah, and and I don't know. I mean, from my experience, that doesn't go too well a lot of times. True. 
you know, envy is the fantasy that an accidental attribute would make you happy forever. And I just don't, uh, I remember, um, sting from the police. Uh, he said that the best time was somewhere between the van and the private jet. Right. So when they were doing the van, it was hard and they were broke and all this kind of stuff. And he said somewhere between the, like the best time to be in the police and to be in that band was between the van and the private jet. The private jet sucked and the van sucked. Somewhere in between <laughs> was a great time. Hmm. So would you say that maybe our, our um, definition as a, as a culture of success is, is warped and twisted and overall sort of ill-advised? That, um, I don't know. You know. Well, I mean, I'm just saying, I don't know. But, but I would say that you saying the people who don't go make go all the way according to money or fame or whatever, that they may be wiser. Mm-hmm. You know, if John Lennon was a less successful musician, probably still be alive today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what Sharon Stone said about fame. She says, you think it's feeding you, but it's eating you. Yeah. I think she's a very smart cookie, and uh, there's a reason she's not been much in the public eye. When when you're in the public eye, everybody projects all their shit onto you, and you've got to be very strong or completely narcissistic and not notice the existence of other people, so to speak, in <laughs> order to survive that. Yeah, it's sort of, it's and, sort of and interesting. The more you're in the public eye, the more of a conformist you have to be. I mean, it just is because if you're in the public eye and you put one foot wrong or you offend one person or you, I mean, obviously there's a little bit of that's going to be allowed. But if you do something to upset, you know, one of the sort of precious baby groups in society, man, I mean, Donald Trump, uh, you know what, people just go mental on you. Now, of course, he's got $10 billion of uh, I don't give much of a crap. Frankly, my my dear media, I don't give a damn. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he you you have to be that wealthy to be able to say even mildly unpalatable truths. Like, you know, some some people who come into the country illegally are contributing to significant amounts of crime, right? So I think just in off the top of my head, I think it was just in Texas over the past certain I can't remember ten years or whatever. There have been like three thousand murders committed by illegal immigrants. Well, America went to war for about that number of dead on 9-11. But you can't mention this, right? Because it annoys people. It annoys people who want the democratic, democratically reliable Hispanic voting base and so on. And people just go mental on you. Now, I mean, he's, what, 68, 69 years old. He's got $10 billion. What does he care, right? He can go and all that, right? But um, and think of the amount of truth-telling that I would bring to bear on social conversations as opposed to just a couple of tiny, relatively tiny, philosophically little things that Trump is talking about. I mean, forget it. I'm not going to invade and take the town. I'm going to shoot a couple of fireworks out and say, out here in the woods is a party. <laughs> People want to come, great. But to go into town, no. No thanks. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're doing a great job of it, Stefan. And you're, you've obviously had an effect on a lot of people's lives. I've listened to your show for a while now to, to know that that's the case. So, yeah. By all measures, I think you've achieved uh, uh, a lot of success in, in your field. So 
I salute you, and I hope that you you continue doing it. And I hope that the show. Well, I appreciate you know, that, and you know, I mean, I I don't. For me, my my measurement is also not Greta Van Susteren or whatever, right? I mean, I'm not. That's not what I'm measuring because she's not a philosopher, right? My my measure is other philosophers. Uh, uh, and the degree to which other philosophers are influencing people's lives, well, for the better. Uh, obviously, there are people out there doing great work and so on. I think I, st- I stand pretty pretty firm and tall with, with the best of them, and that's my goal. And, of course, uh, this is the kind of work that goes on on and on, right, long after I'm dead, right? People are still talking about the Socratic method 25 years after he was killed for being a concern troll from infinity, and, um, so this, you know, you plant your seeds, this, this, this crop is going to grow forever, you know, this, this stuff and people are going to be debating this stuff forever. And, um, I, you know, that there's nothing, you know, haste makes waste. It was something I really remember uh, as a kid. And if you're in too much of a hurry, you don't achieve what you want. And what I want is to sow the seeds. I know it's going to be multi-generational change. And, uh, and it's fundamentally not up to me, right? I mean, if you, if you start a charismatically driven leader central movement, then you can affect change through sophistry, proselytizing and bullying. But since I have no desire, I, I would view the starting of any kind of charismatically driven movement to be the exact opposite of philosophy. Think for yourself by following me, <laughs> right? Go your own way by getting in line. That's not, that's not how it works, right? Yeah, and so yeah, just the encouragement and all of that is is the way to go, and um, clarity and and all that. It's uh, uh, there's no these ripples never stop spreading uh, in in the ocean of human thought, and so uh, just being patient. It's always earlier than you think, as as the old saying about revolutions go. So uh, no, I I would, <laughs> I'm I'm completely happy and content doing uh, what I'm doing uh, because I think that um, I am having conversations with the best people in the world, right? I mean, yourself included, everyone who calls in, um, with very few exceptions, and even those help me get to talk to the best people in the world through examples of when conversations don't go well. And um, I think that uh, the, the deepest thinkers, the, the, the wisest people, the people with the greatest capacity for self-reflection and growth, um, I think a lot of, uh, the show reaches a lot of those people, and those are the people I want to talk to. Uh, most other people, their, quote, belief systems are just tripwires attached to landmines that hmm. only take you out. And uh, the idea that I'd want to dance through that minefield would be, that would, to me would be, uh, it would be self-sabotage to take a television show. Mm, yep, yep. <laughs> Way to bring it around circle. Good job. Thank you, Stefan. I really appreciate you taking the call. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And thank you, everyone, so much for uh, listening, for calling in, for supporting the show and you can go to freedomainradio.com slash donate oh, stuff, to stuff, help stuff. us donation work. request pitch this week i'd I, like duke nukem if you could since he came up earlier in the show duke nukem <laughs> all right <laughs> all right duke nukem how would duke nukem get you to donate to philosophy is he gonna that talk about walking you or watching you walk down the street with your thighs chafing is that is that how he's gonna go no about he it? would not <laughs> <laughs> All right, Freedom Aid Radio listeners, this is Duke Nukem. I don't want you first and foremost to mistake me for your conscience. 
I am not your conscience. I am Duke Nukem. I'm too pixelated to have a conscience. So, these are your balls. Talking. And, even if you're a woman, you can have these balls. They're eggs. They hang drop. Like egg drop soup. Basically, it's like egg drop soup. I'm a Chinese chef, but not your conscience. I'm confusing myself. Because I'm mostly pretty and muscular. I spend a lot of time in the gym, not much time reading. So this is Duke Nukem saying, if you like philosophy, and I don't know what philosophy is, but I hear you can hit it with a rocket launcher. So I like it already. If you like philosophy and you want me to load up rockets and hit philosophy with this rocket launcher, I'm by rocket launcher, I mean my penis, then I really need you to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate so that I can load up my penis and shoot it at this thing called philosophy because I have an entire vat of my own personal Jurgens lotion that I've got to put somewhere. And I hear that painting the face of philosophy with your money is the way to go. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. <laughs> People are either going to donate or never donate again. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Personal Jurgens. I think we've got the name for the show. <laughs> Paint the face of philosophy with your own personal Jurgens. I was waiting for him to go off on breastfeeding like the last time, but he didn't this, this go around. That's okay. He's rocket launchers. <laughs> I'm back. Well, yeah, thanks everyone so much. We'll talk to you uh, Wednesday nights. And um, uh, yeah, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. We'd really appreciate that. And have a great night, everyone. Talk to you soon.